Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Mic Drop. Different day, different time, but same great content. Wow, <laughs> what a speech. That's all I can say. Uh, look, I'm not impressed by politicians' speeches much anymore. I've been doing this for 30 years. Um, and maybe it's just low expectations because of Joe Biden's uh, persona, right? Joe Biden was elected as this conciliatory figure after the Trump era, but man, he came came throwing seven kinds of smoke here. And at a time when the base wants to see fights, uh, he gave them fight. We're going to go over that. Uh, and I'm going to also talk about Kevin McCarthy's speech. And if we've got some more time, I'm going to jump into some of the polls and the polling data. Uh, but before we do that, I want to thank all of you for joining us here on Mic Drop. Uh, this is a call-in app that allows for greater engagement. I made that commitment to all of you guys during the last election cycle that I would be as available as possible to offer some of my insights, some of my analysis, and answer specific questions from a practitioner's point of view. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm on this app. That's why we're going to be having this discussion today. So do me a favor, two quick things, some housekeeping items. Jump into the queue right away. Don't wait for that. Those who are regular listeners know that we get some phenomenal questions that really drive the discussion. It does help out. I'm going to make sure I get to as many or most, hopefully all of your questions, but start out earlier rather than later. And the second is there's an option to share this room on your social media, on Twitter, if you can do that and show people that we're having that discussion now, it would mean a lot to me. I really appreciate it. It helps build an audience. It helps build a crowd. It helps build attention to what we're doing here. And I think as we get closer to the elections, it's going to be extremely helpful. So if you could do that, that would be fantastic. Let me start out. Look, I guys, I wanted to start with Kevin McCarthy and show the contrast, but I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit gassed up here. I'm a little bit pumped up. So I'm going to start, if I can, uh, with with Biden's speech. Never thought I'd be saying that, but I'm going to start with Biden's speech. I'm going to walk through the elements from a practitioner's uh, point of view, from somebody who's written speeches for politicians, from somebody who's looking at the polling data 67 days out of an election in the midterms, and explain from my perspective what that means. And then I'm going to go into Kevin McCarthy's because this is really, really important. This is really, uh, you saw today a master class in contrast if you watched both of these speeches, you were seeing two very different audiences being spoken to, and I'm going to show you and talk to you exactly from both the visuals to the to the the language to the uh, the tone and the tenor uh, and the issues matrix that both of them are talking to. They're talking to two completely different Americas, by the way. This is not this is not an attempt by either politician to get into the persuasion business at this point. They're seeing the polling numbers start to set. You heard me talk for the past year about looking for movement. That movement now is going to start setting in concrete. Okay, you've been hearing me, all of you guys who follow, you've been talking for months about saying all I'm looking for is movement, all I'm looking for is movement. Folks, I'm not looking for movement much right now. What I'm looking for is the setting of the issues matrix because that's going to, what that means is, what they're talking about in terms of the issues, because that's going to tell me exactly what demographics these campaigns 
all of their consultants, all of their advisors, these tens of millions of dollars is going to be spent on heading into the last 67 days of this race, okay? So all of that movement, all of that positioning, everything the consultants have been looking at, all the raising tons and tons and tons of dough has been gone towards building the firepower to deliver the final messages of this campaign. And boy, did we get a perfect illustration of what each campaign is thinking. So again, going to start with Biden, okay, just because... Man, this guy came in hot, right? And I want to talk about the tone. The tone here was Joe Biden on the offense. And you don't, you, I, I'm not sure the last time we, we heard Joe Biden on this kind of an offensive uh, attack. And that's what it was. This is, I just tweeted out. This is like Joe Biden calling on the cavalry and raising his sword and pointing it towards the enemy line and saying, charge. Go blow out the enemy's line right in the front, because if you blow out the enemy's line, everything else is going to fold. Okay? He takes the setting of Independence Hall and captures the entire frame of the American experiment and throws down a marker and says, this is what is on the line. This is what that is about. Now, how effective is that with MAGA Republicans, which we're going to get into in just a second. It's not. It's not effective. In fact, it's doing the opposite. It's charging up the MAGA Republicans and getting them pissed off. If any of you guys have MAGA family members or have to unfortunately have dinner with somebody who, who's, a, who's a Donald Trump supporting Republican, dinner's going to be tough tonight. Okay, it's going to be a tough night being in that same household because they are going to be spitting fire pissed. And that's part of what they're trying to do here. You don't give this kind of a speech without trying to elicit some sort of a significant response. And as we used to say on the Lincoln Project, as Rick Wilson used to say, there's an audience of one that there's no question this was designed to elicit a response from. Joe Biden wants Donald Trump in this race. He wants to stand up toe-to-toe and say, my vision of democracy and your vision of democracy at a time when Donald Trump's numbers are tanking, when it's very clear that the polling on the phraseology MAGA Republican is gotta be, it's gotta be just kryptonite, just kryptonite with independents who are fleeing Donald Trump in droves right now. So yeah, it may be rallying the Republican base. It may be rallying the Trump flag uh, flying, you know, uh, guys with the, with the, the uh, you may see a boat caravan around Mar-a-Lago or, you know, a pickup truck caravan somewhere as a result of this. That's an exactly, exactly what the Democratic consultants want. And I can't, I can't stress enough the fact that you heard the term MAGA Republican probably 30 times coming out of the president of the United States mouth. That is happening for a reason. That phrase has been poll tested and focus grouped probably a hundred times in the last hundred days as those campaigns are gearing up. Okay, that's not just a coincidence. He's going straight after him. And it's not necessarily because it works with Democrats. They're already there. It's it's certainly firing up Republicans. I guarantee you the speech that Joe Biden gave tonight at Independence Hall fired up Republicans 10 times more than Kevin McCarthy's speech. 10 times, maybe 20 times more, okay? That's by design. Joe Biden and the Democrats want 
the extremists to attack him. They're going to take the bait. They cannot help it. Trump is going to respond. Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to respond. The wackadoodles on Newsmax are going to respond. Tucker Carlson was already responding during the speech. Okay? They can't help it. They have to keep their base together. And the more that that fight happens, the more that these MAGA Republicans, and I would strongly encourage all of you guys when you're tweeting or, 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 or talking to people, use that phraseology. You'll start to break off some of those last hanger-ons there that, are, that just can't handle the Trump stuff anymore, or as things get worse, they will break off a, a, little, a handful more. That's not what the strategy is designed to do, by the way. That will happen. There are going to be more moderate Republicans that break off, but, but that's not what this was about. That is not what this was about. That's gravy. That's icing. We'll take that heading into the midterms. You take every vote you can in lower turnout elections. But what this is about... This was 100% about independents who are tanking with Donald Trump and as a result of the Mar-a-Lago raid and finding out that this guy was peddling top secrets and and knowing that the January 6th hearings, by the way, are not over yet, folks. They're not over. There's going to be more January 6th hearings. All of these current problems have nothing to do with Jan 6th. All of this is having the intended effect of a dramatic swing, a dramatic shift in movement of independence towards the Democrats. Okay, you get that and you get the Dobbs ruling effect, a political earthquake I've been talking about that's going to get the overperformance of women for Democrats by getting lower propensity Democratic women, 18 to 24 year old women who don't normally show up in the midterms showing up. You have these registration numbers popping everywhere from Kansas to, to, to uh, everywhere. There hasn't been a race yet that, where we haven't seen an overperformance. Alaska, folks, a Democrat won in Alaska, okay, last night. These are all very significant indicators that in all likelihood, most of the polling is not waiting for, W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, waiting for those factors, there's a good chance that this could even be more significant, more significant turnout than anybody is expecting. And my guess is if you saw Kevin McCarthy's face, they're seeing that in their own polling too. Notice, really important, notice Kevin McCarthy literally is in Scranton, Pennsylvania. One is it's kind of a slap in the face at Joe Biden. Okay, whatever, you take that, hats off, kind of a, a maybe a too cute by half move. But he's in, he's, Scranton is, is defined as blue-collar, working-class folk. They didn't go into the suburbs and have a bunch of soccer moms behind them. You notice that? Because the soccer moms have had it with the Republicans. They've had it with Kevin McCarthy. They're pissed. Women are pissed. I, I'm sure there's some pissed-off women listeners here. Men are getting pissed, right? But when we're starting to see this type of turnout, it's telling us everything we need to know. And both sides are seeing it. That's what these speeches told us. The Democrats, what Joe Biden is doing with this MAGA Republican frame is he's trying to cleave off all of these independents, these late deciding independents, lower information voters, lower propensity voters that are going to have an increased likelihood of showing up in the midterms because we're going to have pretty robust turnout, folks. I don't know that we get to 2018 levels. We might. We might. That was like a 56% turnout. We may be in an era, by the way, 
of permanent high turnout, as things are getting more intense, as we're talking about civil war, as we're worried about the the fate literally of democracy, 67% of both parties, and we can talk about this too if you want, but 67% of both parties believe democracy is under threat. These are very hyper-partisan, tense, anxious times on both sides. That's the perfect recipe for high turnout. You know what? We had record high turnout in the 2018 midterms. We had the highest turnout in the history of the country in 2020. We're going to have high turnout in the 2022 midterms. Okay, we're going to have high turnout. Does it hit 2018 levels? Does it surpass 2018 levels? I don't, I don't know yet. I don't know. I will say the 2018 midterms is as as energized and as angry and as pissed off and scared and mobilized as people are right now. You got to dial it back four years ago and remember the Million Woman March, right? There was an energy there too. A lot of candidates, Democrats, were running for office and unseating Republicans in that year. We're not seeing. That kind of mature swell, because that swell started in 2016 and crested up into 2016. I shouldn't say it crested. It was building all the way up to 20. People were pissed and tense in a very unique way in American history for four years every single day. You all know what I'm talking about because you lived it. We all experienced it together. The question is, without Donald Trump's name specifically on the ballot, will the anti-Trump forces show up in the same levels or maybe even higher we're going to find out but what i am going to say is this it's going to be towards the high range of turnout we're just we're seeing that everywhere in all these special elections we're seeing low propensity democrats showing up as i said earlier i think there's enough evidence to suggest that in the short term at least probably the medium term we are entering an era of permanent high turnout for the foreseeable future Right. As this country goes through this extraordinary time of anxiety and fear and anger with the opposite sides, people are getting riled up. And that, folks, is why Joe Biden gives this speech with this tone, with this type of an offensive strategic positioning. Okay, really, really smart politics. And and uh, say what you will, like, again, you all know what my background is. You all know where I come from. But what I'm going to say is that um, this is the first time I feel like the Biden operation gets it and, and is doing everything right. Okay? Uh, a, a good friend of mine, I think the world of him, uh, texted uh, and said, I think this is too much. I think Biden's overreaching here. I think... I think that this is this is too angry. This tone is too aggressive. Joe Biden is a conciliatory figure, and people want, a, you know, they, they want peace in our time. That's what they don't want the aggressive politician anymore. And I pushed back right away and said, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I think people want to scrap. I think people want to see their side fighting, especially in the last sixty some odd days before an election. Especially when if the Democrats get this higher turnout and there is an off tick in the Republican based turnout, we're going to talk about that again in just a second. I can't tell you how devastating, how devastating it will be for the Republican Party if they don't get a majority in the House or a majority in the Senate. It will cause an extraordinary internal war within the Republican Party.
the likes of which we have never seen a, a modern political party go through. Okay, if the Democrats hold on to the House, and I'm not saying they will, I still don't think that they're the odds on favorite. But what I am going to say is Biden pushed all his chips in and he's like, let's go. Let's go. bro. Let's go, Brandon. Right. Let's let's go. I want this fight. Let's lean in. Let's push the envelope as far as we can with literally every constituency that is polling in a in a positive or, or at least a more positive range for the Democrats. So let me take that to Kevin McCarthy's speech now. Scranton, Pennsylvania, just mentioned that. All white folks behind him, right? Blue collar, factory setting, nothing at all wrong with that, except for politically, this is, this is precisely the Republican base. While Joe Biden was speaking to everybody, everybody, if not honestly and earnestly to this same group, and he probably was, he knows they're not going to get those votes, but you might as well go straight after him and talk to them because that allows you to talk to everybody. Joe Biden is literally saying, I'm the president for everybody, right? You never heard Donald Trump use that kind of language. It was always us against them. Kevin McCarthy, the visual, the location, and then the message and the backdrop are all targeted towards blue-collar, working-class men. Why is that important? It's extremely important because the Republicans are no longer playing offense. Their polling is showing the exact same thing. They are down to their base, and they've got to overperform with blue-collar, non-college-educated workers, especially men. He also leaned into Trump, which is fascinating because he knows, and again, I've known Kevin for 30 years, he knows this is probably one of the smartest tactical leaders in the campaign construct of either side in my adult lifetime. Kevin McCarthy knows how to run a campaign. If he loses and got kicked out of Congress and lost his job, this dude could go out and win and run campaigns. He's that good. Okay, I'll give him that. And I say that for a reason. It's because he knows precisely what he's doing. A close observer, any of you guys who watched Kevin McCarthy will see the guy with the Trump hat on behind him. Right. Older white dude, probably early mid 60s. Got a Trump hat on black shirt, black T-shirt. That's by design. It's also very specific and by design that Kevin McCarthy says that the raid on Donald Trump's home was a threat to democracy. Really important. What he's saying is, I am going to fight for Donald Trump. His audience is not independence here. He knows he's losing them. It's certainly not women because he's losing them. Of course it's not Democrats. He's losing them. His primary audience was Donald Trump himself. Because it's increasingly likely that if the Republicans do hold on to the House of Representatives, it's going to be by like 10, 12, maybe 15 seats. And if that happens, folks, Kevin McCarthy's in a lot of trouble. Okay? A lot of trouble because the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gateses of the world do not want him speaker. The Jim Jordans of the world do not want him to be speaker. The, the most vocal pro-Trump 
members of the House do not trust and do not like Kevin McCarthy. So what I saw Kevin doing today was trying to coalesce his support for Donald Trump in either a very small minority as speaker and holding on, or if he does not get the majority, remains the minority leader, allows himself some possibility of staying the leader of the House conference, the leader of the, of the minority uh, Republican caucus. Why is it unlikely that he needs Trump as much if it's a 20-plus House a majority for the Republicans? The reason is because those incoming members, those, those other members, are more reliant and have been dependent on Kevin McCarthy for their success and for winning that congressional seat, and they owe him, and they will owe him loyalty with a larger majority. There will be just be more votes if there are few, to, to protect him. If there are fewer votes, he's in jeopardy. And that's what you've heard a lot of people say. A lot of really smart, close observers of this have, are saying, unless it's a 20-plus majority for, for Kevin McCarthy, there's a good chance he does not become speaker even if the Republicans pick up the majority. If it's 10, 12, 15, he's in trouble. There's going to be a tough fight. Donald Trump could possibly save him, and that's what this speech was about. It's a recognition that the numbers aren't going as good as they need to be for him at this moment in time, and if he ends up with a 10-seat majority, the only person that can keep him speaker is Donald J. Trump who will be facing indictment likely by then, if not before the midterms, and certainly shortly thereafter, on Justice Mar-a-Lago raid. Remember, guys, this just happened a few weeks ago. We, we weren't focused on this a month ago. We were focused on Liz Cheney bringing the heat on the January 6th committee. That's still coming. There's going to be more evidence and more, more information coming out in the next 60 days, in the next two months. Probably a lot. Probably a lot. Law enforcement in Georgia is going to be presenting information. This dude's in trouble. These numbers are going to start hemorrhaging. There's only so much. There's only so much a dam can hold back. And like we said, we've been saying that for six years. You're absolutely right. But remember, I was telling you in 2020, if we get four, five, six percent, that's enough. And it was. What I'm telling you now is the possibility to break even more off of that is considerable. Double, maybe triple that, okay? And if I'm wrong, great, I'm wrong. Let's say it's only four, five, six, seven, six, seven percent. We get back to 2020 numbers. I'll tell you what, the Republicans are not going to get the same share, vote share of independence that they got in 2020. They're going to get less, and they're going to get far less. And that is, that is what these speeches were about. Kevin McCarthy is down to base vote. He's got to have his base vote overperform. And they have in the past, twice. You know when they were? 2016, rural, white, non-college-educated voters overperformed the turnout model. And you know when they did again? 2020. For my A students in the front row, what do those two years have in common? Donald Trump was on the ballot. Like, literally on the ballot. I don't know if you guys remember, of course I do because I watch for these these peculiar things. Donald Trump in 2018 was saying, I'm on the ballot when he was trying to goose turnout because he knew that the Republicans were going to lose the majority in the midterms. Even when he was saying it, if he wasn't literally on the ballot, they wouldn't show up. Right? The cult is strong with these folks. It's literally just about him. 
They don't care about the Republican Party. They don't believe in the Republican Party. They believe in him and him alone. These low propensity Republicans that only show up when he is on the ballot. So the fact that Kevin McCarthy is relying on those voters is a sign that we cannot ignore. It's telling us exactly where both parties believe that they're at. And it is, look, there's, there's still a long way to go. I'm going to say that, but we're in the hunt now, right? You've heard me say again for the past 18 months, all we're looking for is movement. Don't pay attention to the horse race polls. I'm still not a believer in the horse race polls because I'm never a believer in the horse race polls. But now what I'm doing, uh, now I'm looking less at the, at the movement and I'm watching the issues matrix of which policies and which focus, areas of focus both parties are speaking to. So let me cover this. And I, folks, I'm going to need some of you guys in the queue here because I've been a little bit heated up and my voice is getting a little bit scratchy. It's given out. So questions, I need you guys to get up on stage. But here's what Kevin McCarthy did. Kevin, Kevin leaned in hard to two basic oldie but goodies. Crime, right? He went straight to the border. You can always count on a Republican to go straight to the border when times get tough. As the first thing he brought up, border security. Then he blames democracy as a way of saying that the Democrats are trying to, uh, they're, they're, they're weak on crime or they're, they're using the power of law enforcement to undermine democracy. Crime is going to be an issue. It's just got too many emotional, racial undertones not to. I am a little bit surprised. I'm not going to BS you. I'm not, uh, I, I'm, I, am, I am a little bit surprised that Kevin didn't choose a more suburban district and lean in harder to the crime issue. But the reason that they didn't is they are seeing that they've got the last bit of coalescing their base. A party without a base can't win. They've, they are at a position 65, 67 days out where they've got to get their base coalesced. And that has not happened yet. They've got to hold the line. They've got to hold the line. Without that, you, you could potentially have an enormous wipeout. Okay? And then the other is you saw Joe Biden saying it's about a loss of rights. All of which test through the roof, by the way, or at least very strongly. Abortion rights, rights to choose through the roof. It's not hypothetical anymore. It's a very real threat. We're seeing the results of that happening. The second um, is he talks about um, marriage equality, which the public supports now. The the public is not going to react kindly in in a popular way at the voter level if people start to remove or restrict the rights of people to marry who they want. And the third, again, is this, this, this uh, talk about stealing the election and the big lie and undermining in- the institution of democracy itself. He makes a very compelling case, all of which independent voters specifically believe him, believe in the Democratic Party and trust the Democratic Party more. So you see the Democrats leaning into this issues matrix, offering more specifics, and you see the, Dem- the Republicans leaning stronger and heavier into the culture war, the culture fight. I was also really, really kind of taken aback by how personal Kevin McCarthy was trying to make this. He was basically saying, Joe Biden and the Democrats are coming after you. It was a very dark, personal, threatening fearful speech trying to show people like if the Republicans don't win the House, it's essentially the end of the Republic. 
And I will tell you, if the Republicans don't win the House, I still think they probably will. The odds still are that they will, but uh, with the way this is continuing to move, I could, you know, could, could look could look very different, or even a week or two. But if the Republicans don't win the House, the type of internal warfare that is going to happen will be unlike anything we have seen in a major party since probably 1968 with Wallace and Humphrey um, fighting um, and ripping the Democratic Party apart. So with that, I've gone on a little bit. There's got to be some questions. Jump into the queue. I'm going to take a a quick break and have a little bit of water. D, come up on stage. Unmute the button there. Hey, uh... How are you? Hey, Mike. Welcome. Yeah, I enjoy um, you and uh, what's yeah you and Chuck's podcast, uh, Latino Vote. It's pretty interesting. Thanks so much. Um, I being in PA and being in an area where there's like a pretty big Hispanic population, mm-hmm. I don't get the sense that um, at least where I am, Hispanics are don't seem to be ultra like conservative. Uh huh. Um, but have you seen like a difference between? I'm in PA for full disclosure. Um, yeah. But have you seen a difference in like the different ethnicities of um, Hispanics in terms of like breaking to the Republican or Democratic Party? I mean, obviously there's the Cuban story uh, that's mm-hmm. emphasized in South Florida, Florida. But do you think like in some of these Senate races, like Puerto Ricans or Mexicans are more likely to back uh, Democrats or? Or yeah, like what have, you great, seen? what have you seen? Yeah, great question. Pennsylvania specifically is a really interesting place. It's one we're going to be watching very closely. Chuck actually has done a ton of work there. He used to be a, a union steel worker there and, and organized workers. I've done obviously a lot of work in Pennsylvania, including in the 2020 cycle. I think there's a, almost half a million now uh, Latino Hispanic voters, most of them um, on uh, around the um, urban kind of core of both Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia, but with the different, by the way, uh, a little bit more Puerto Rican towards the Philadelphia side and a little bit more Mexican American, um, on, in the Pittsburgh area. Um, look, our, no, no disrespect to my Cuban brothers and sisters, love them very much, but, but they are Republican. We all know that. No surprise here. They, they are leaning stronger Republican. There's now a multi-generational coalition amongst Cuban American voters. But Cubans are less than 5% of the Hispanics in this country. You would think because of the narrative that they're like 80% or, or half or 30%. You'd think that they were this big, huge share of the vote. Folks, it's, it's, it's like 5%. And most, most of them live in, in you know, South Florida. Nothing wrong with that. But one of the reasons that they get so much attention is because they're anomalous politically as an ethnic minority, as Hispanics, they're Republican. That is different. They come from an anti-communist, you know, background, which which largely made them Republican. And they're in one of the most, you know, important geographical areas in in a swing state. And so the Republicans are not only reliant on them, but the Democrats have had to kind of nod a little bit too, and and kind of recognize that this peculiarity exists. Bottom line is they're the only discernible group. Uh, amongst the Hispanics, which vote a majority with Republicans. Now, having said that, this rightward shift that you've heard a lot about, you've heard me talking about, is happening with Mexican-Americans largely, especially those in the Rio Grande Valley, a little bit in New Mexico. Um, there's two main reasons. One, as I've, I've shared uh, at length, working on a book on it right now, which I'll be sharing with you guys 
um, you know, uh, shortly. It won't, it won't come out until the presidential cycle because I want to get some of the midterm data. But it's the, the Latinos are the fastest blue collar working class demographic in America. So I, I look when Kevin McCarthy was was in Scranton. Um, you're going to see Republicans talking about blue collar issues to blue collar base. He's talking to white folks in Scranton. Okay, in in six years, you're not going to see that. You're going to see him with a bunch of brown faces behind him talking to the same factory workers, trying to appeal to Latino Hispanic voters on working class economic populist issues. The Puerto Rican shift, it's happening slightly, but not nearly as much as it is with with Mexican-Americans. And I don't want to suggest that it's huge with Mexican-Americans, but what I will suggest is that it's measurable, it's real, it's demonstrable. It's been happening for at least the last two and a half cycles, and I say half because I'm including off-cycle elections. It's demonstrable. It's just there. It's not debatable. It's been happening. One final caveat, though, here, Dee, and that is this. Abortion and the overturning of Roe and Dobbs is going to change that. We are seeing Hispanic Catholics, Mexican-American Catholics specifically, decidedly moving pro-choice. There was a large ambivalence about it, and there's this fake stereotype, stereotype and narrative that because we're all Catholic, Hispanics are all Mexican-Americans are all Catholic, that you know somehow we're all pro-life. That has never been a driving issue for Mexican Americans politically in the aggregate. Of course, there's anecdotes, and you know my aunt, who's a, you know my uncle, whoever is you know really pro-life and really Catholic, and of course there's some of that. But mathematically, measurably, this has never been a determining issue for for Catholics. And I say Mexican Catholics because Mexicans are like 65 percent of Hispanics. When we talk about the Latino vote. In the coming years, we're going to be talking more and more about Mexicans because it's just so overwhelmingly the largest number of the vote. So I, I, I don't that think, yeah, I don't think that there's anything to worry about in Pennsylvania specifically. As I've shared, I think Pennsylvania is a bluer state than most. It people. is, yeah, yeah. It is. A, I'm, in, a, I'm in the Lehigh Valley area with like kind of okay. working class, a lot of yep. Hispanics, some, okay. some black voters too. Uh huh. Yeah. So that's it, look. If you're not seeing that in that area. Where you're gonna, then you're probably not gonna see a significant shift, especially this year. You may see a lot of evangelical churches organizing. We don't talk enough about the power and influence of the evangelical church, where a lot of Hispanic Catholics are leaving and becoming evangelical. That's where you really start to see this hard right shift. That's where abortion does matter. That's where same-sex marriage does matter. That's where the QAnon stuff really starts to take root. That's where these folks really rally, and it's really a rejection of modernity, and they actually become very, very rapidly pro-Trump, like Latinos for Trump organizations. I don't want to suggest that they're big, but they are significant, they're measurable, and that's what I would be keeping my eyes open for in the Lehigh Valley, in working-class blue-collar communities that's the, it's really a function of, of either evangelical Christianity, a lot of returning vets sometimes, people in the military, military backgrounds, much more conservative than otherwise. But I think for the most part in this election cycle in 2022, that rightward shift has probably slowed down or stopped. We'll see what happens in 2024. Oh, and one last thing, because um, I, I listened yeah. to the Patreon. Um, you, I didn't hear the one race I didn't hear your guys' thoughts on. Maybe I missed it. Was uh, and then I'll hang up. Was what were your what is your and Chuck's thoughts on North Carolina because it kind of has a Latino population, yeah. a black population. Yeah, I, I, I'm really intrigued and fascinated by North Carolina. We talked about it a little bit, I think, last week on the show. Let me do this. 
Why I'll, I'll put uh, the, in the hopper. I'll give Chuck some homework. He and I will talk about it specifically on the next episode. Um, what I will say, though, generally is this, because I don't want to be dismissive. It is very important. You know, North Carolina should be a bluer state than it is. Gives me a little bit of heartburn because you've got a third college-educated white voters, a third non-college-educated white voters, and a third African-American black voters. That recipe should be moving that state into a more blue position. It's not happening. Happened with Obama, right? Obama picked it off. And since then, it has trended more Republican, even though you're getting an influx of college-educated white voters. The real variable there is going to be the growth of the Hispanic community, which is why I'm glad you asked. It's not discernible enough yet to make a difference statewide, but it will start to narrow the gap. Will it for this election cycle? Honestly, probably not, but I'm also going to be honest with you, D. I haven't looked really closely at North Carolina because it's not a necessary state for majorities going either way. If North Carolina comes into play, and I'll end it on this, and, and then we'll get to Kevin, who's uh, in the queue. If North Carolina's in play, folks, if that, watch those two races. If the Senate and the governor's races start to get competitive in North Carolina, um, that means there's going to be a blue wave. And I, I'm not a big believer in these wave elections because I, I, I believe more negative partisanship than anything else. But if North Carolina is really tight, if the averages show this thing tight and you start to see the Democrat maybe pop up in either of those statewide by one point, maybe two points, doesn't even have to be in the average, just even outliers showing the Democrat pulling ahead. It means there's something remarkable happening with the Democratic base, and it's going to be transferable across the country. Fair enough? All right, Kevin. Sorry, but thanks for the wait, brother. Go ahead and unmute there, and uh, let's see what question you got for us. Now, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, great. Yeah, I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on the uh, psychosis unfolding on Truth Social this week. <laughs> well, I, I, I think, Kevin, let me, let me see if I'm talking about the right psychosis here. And that is sort of this meltdown that Trump has had over the past few days where he's, he's rapidly tweeting like 70 tweets plus a day, and they're becoming less and less coherent and making less and less sense. The, yeah, I mean, yeah. They're, they're, they're bad and they're dangerous. Right. They're, they're, I mean, they're yeah. teetering on, you know, open violence there. Okay, let me let me let me say this, and again, I want to be very measured about this. But I, you know, I, I said in 2020, I think every one of us in the Lincoln Project said this too publicly, and we we talked about it a lot because you got to be careful when you use this language. But we we were saying, for those of you that were following us back then, that there would be a violent attempt to steal the election. And we, we were not using that language lightly, okay? I do believe that the rhetoric and the language of violence is going to escalate, okay? Uh, I think that in part, that's what Biden was preparing the country for. He's recognizing very astutely that there is a wide swath and a wide segment of our society that has become radicalized. And when people become radicalized, there's no persuasion, there's no debates, there's no like, let, let me, I'm not too sure how I feel about that. There's no undecideds. When you're radicalized, you lean more into extremism than you do into persuadability. And that's why we have already seen some of the things that we have seen over the past couple of years, like people trying to kidnap the governor of Michigan, for example, right? The uh, Patriot Front. Uh, showing up with weaponry, 
uh, to, to all, a, a number of government-related functions, threats to the FBI, right? Bomb threats or people with guns showing up to federal buildings. These are early signs of, of I don't want to say civil war, but they are essentially acts of war, okay? If we devolve into civil war, and, and I said this for those of you that follow me on Ron Stetzel on politicology, and again, I'm very measured about this. I believe we're already in a civil war, okay? Those things that I just mentioned, they are they are a social phenomenon that are individually acts of war. If, if they were any, but being conducted by anybody other than white men, we would be acting like this is the, you know, we were under a siege or under attack from some other country, right? If you had a bunch of Muslim men showing up armed to the FBI office, I mean, think of what this country would do. Like, for us, it's like an hour of focus and attention on Twitter, and then, and then it kind of goes away, and we go on to the next stupid thing that Donald Trump is doing. But if those were, 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 were Muslim men, we would be behaving and acting very differently. There's no reason why we should be. The FBI has already told us that the single most significant domestic threat is white nationalism. This extremism, and it's not going to get better, folks. It's going to get worse for a while. I think what Biden did was very smart today. He's preparing the country to say, these are the stakes. This is where we're at. We have to remember that most of us are not extremists, but it is there and we have to be honest about it. We're going to have to be vigilant and we're going to have to be really careful and observant. But it's there, and it's not going to just disappear with one man. Donald Trump is sowing the seeds and feeding the garden of hate. And that hate can't not be allowed to exist. I think that was one of the lines that Biden actually used tonight, right? You can't allow it. We can't allow hate to exist. It has to be confronted. So the language that I'm seeing with Donald Trump, as he gets more desperate, we know he doesn't care about anybody but himself. The last line of defense that he has is the same last line of defense that he had on January 6th, which was the mob. was calling together people violently to go overthrow something to get his way. Is he going to do that again? Of course he is. Of course he is. And it's why it's so important that we remain vigilant and on the offense now, because the more headway we make, the more progress we make now on organizing and coalescing and pulling together independence in the right direction and peeling off the, these, those remaining moderate Republicans, the less likely it is to flare up and take uh, more root. Victoria. Hello. How are you? I'm doing good. How about you? Good. Good to hear from you. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. All right. I have a question I've been wanting to ask you for months. Okay. So as somebody who lives in the 21st century, I have a phone. My husband has a phone. My kids have a cell phone. We don't have a landline. None yeah. of us answer the phone if we don't know who it is. We don't mm-hmm. take online um, surveys or anything like that because they always seem to be a scam. Right. How do people get polled? Okay. Great question. Love this question. It's a really important one. Um, let me explain the way a poll works, and then I'm going to address the technology piece because it is important, okay? Um, the first thing is to, to have a, a, a um, scientifically valid survey, 
you have to have what we call a reflective pool that that is weighted, W-E-I-G-H-T-E-D, weighted according to what the overall either society is that you're polling, if you're like Pew Research that is just trying to figure out what Americans think, or in a campaign construct, you have to guess at what the electorate is going to be because the electorate is just the people that show up to vote, and that looks very different than the overall population. So sometimes you'll see something called RV, which is registered voters, in a poll, you're looking for the LV, which is likely voters. And that likely voters is a guess by the pollster. So we have to, you know, split a poll 50-50 with men and women because men and women are 50-50 in the population. Women by about one or two points vote in a higher degree than men, although that may change a little bit. Uh, how many Latinos, like 12% of the electorate, needs to be Hispanic in my sample? How many people over 65 represent the likely electorate? You know, all of these, how many Republicans, how many Democrats, do you have to find as much demographic criteria as you can to get a reflective sample? Now, the size of this survey, and you hear me criticize of this a lot on, on social media, is sometimes the samples aren't big enough. But to get a scientifically valid sample, you can kind of go as low as 600. Um, I, to me, that's a little sketchy. I, I don't really have confidence in a survey unless it's a, a, about 800 respondents. Unless you're talking to 800 people, you're not getting deep enough into what we call the cross tabs, the cross tabulations, the demographics of enough women, enough men, enough Republicans, enough Democrats, enough Latinos, enough independents, all of the you know senior citizens, college students, all of that stuff. 800 to 1200 responses is a good standard typical survey. Now, how do we find these people? Well, back in the old days, yeah, we used to use landlines. Well, folks, like many of you, I haven't had a landline in 20 years. Yeah. Uh, so, so what does that mean? Well, it means it's harder to connect to people, but unless you have enough respondents that match the sample that you put together, it's not a statistically valid survey. So what that means is we have to call a lot more people to get a hold of enough Men and women and Republicans and Democrats and young people and older people. So when people say stuff like, I don't have a landline and nobody calls me or young people don't use landlines, they only have cell phones, that's true, but that's not really the point. That's not how it works. You, what we do is we know how many respondents we have to have under each demographic category, and however we've got to get mm-hmm. to them, we get to them. In fact, what some pollsters have started to do, and maybe all pollsters have done, is they incorporate an online platform because so many young people are living online now. It's easier to connect to them and find them online and ask them questions online and mix those in with your cell phone responses. But it's really important to understand that unless you get enough responses to have a valid random survey it's not a valid poll, and no pollster is out there doing that that's credible, that is, is saying uh, we contacted everybody by phone or we contacted everybody by landline. Or because we couldn't get enough young people, uh, we'll, we just won't include them, and somehow it's a valid poll. That's not, that's not at all how it works. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I hope that's helpful. It is, but I but I have one follow up to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, won't the people answering the phone have a different type of skew, or even online, they have a different mindset than than who? Than they used to. How's that? Than twenty years ago when we used to just pick up the phone, 
Oh, no. Uh, no. I mean, well, yes. I, I mean, I guess, yes, but that's what we're looking for. We're looking for differences from 20 years ago. Right? Are, are, are they different because of the technology that we're using? If that's the question, the answer is no, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay. Be, it doesn't matter because, well, first of all, cell phones are so ubiquitous that that doesn't that doesn't really concern us. Like back in the old days, you probably heard like the 1940 Gallup poll, Harry Truman, nobody, you know, Dewey w- w- was the winner because uh, you know the people with landline were rich Republicans and they were the only ones with landline, so it skewed more towards that direction. Um, sure, I'm sure that was the case in 1940. I mean, you, you've got third graders with cell phones now, yeah. right? Everyone's got a cell phone. So it, it, that's really not the challenge. The challenge is just getting the response from the random sample, from the random survey. Um, a, a, a tactical mistake like that, that did happen in the 1940s presidential polling, um, was also, you know, polling was very unique. It was all done door to door before that. And so it did create a, a skew, but that's not the problem that we're seeing in our polling today. Oh. What, we're, what we're really seeing is it's extremely hard to guess accurately at the turnout models and where things are being weighted. So look, there's no other, there's not, not another question behind us. Go ahead and jump into the queue, folks, if you've got a question. But, but let me, let me, if it's okay, Victoria, let me, let me, yeah. let me, let me riff off this a little bit more. So one of the problems is in this polling cycle is because the Dobbs decision happened in June and women are starting to show up. We're getting all this this evidence, right? It's it's like the New York special, the Nebraska special, the Kansas referendum. All of these data points are saying, whoa, women are showing up in these huge numbers that nobody was anticipating. And so the polling was off. They looked more Republican than they actually were. And people are going, well, wait a second. How is that happening? It's happening because the only way to make an educated guess on who is going to show up is to look at history. And so you go back four, five, six election cycles and you balance your current voter model of who's going to show up on the historical trend of the last four, five, six, eight, ten elections. Well, if something as significant as Dobbs shakes things up, there's nothing to gauge at what, how women are going to react, if at all. Well, when they do, you start to have a, an electorate which is clearly going to be more female in November than it has been in probably the last 30 years. But the problem, Victoria, is how do you guess at how big it's going to be? Is it 1%? Is it 3%? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? They don't know. The pollsters don't know. So all they can start doing is start adjusting their newer polls from the post-Dobbs era, which was only, what, 45 days ago? And so, and so now you're going to start seeing this movement towards Democrats that you're starting to see in the polling start to get bigger because the pollsters are going to start making their turnout projections more female than they have been with the historical data prior to June. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thanks so much for that question. It was really uh, a really insightful one. Um, any other questions? Go ahead and jump up into the queue. If not, let me talk a little bit about about some of the polling. But but jump in here, guys, because your questions are what's so important. We've got a big group, and I'm sure you probably don't like me going on too much on these diatribes. If you do, I mean, I can always figure. There's always tons of political stuff to talk about. But uh, before before the Kevin McCarthy speech, before the Joe Biden speech, this was going to be a discussion on polling. 
Okay, that those questions uh, about polling are this significant movement that we have seen. I think there was a Wall Street Journal poll that came out today that I think has a Biden plus six or plus nine, something very significant over Donald Trump, where they've been basically at parity. That decline in Trump's support, that rise in Biden's support is extremely significant. Again, that movement now is starting to gel. As Joe Biden is moving from the low 30s, right? Like two months ago, he was at 32, 33, 34. There was undoubtedly a crest swelling that was going to be a red wave, undeniably, right? Kevin McCarthy was already, you know, sizing up the drapes for the speaker's office. Now, the Democratic uh, Party is at a plus two position on the rolling averages on the generic ballot, and Biden is sitting at 44, which may not sound really good because it's still six points away from even a majority, but it's better than where Reagan was in his first midterms. It's better than where Trump was in his first midterms. It's better than where Obama was in his first midterms. Now, all of those presidents, to, to, to be fair, all of those presidents suffered significant setbacks in their first term, first midterm elections. It's really significant, not slightly, but really significant. Okay. And that's why historically, if you look at data and data matters, okay, data matters. I'm still predicting that the Republicans will have a small majority in the House at this point. There's still 60 days. If this continues to get bigger and the Democrats change the historical trend line, we're going to see it in about 30 days. If those numbers keep moving in this bigger direction, we're going to see it, folks. And it's going to be you know, potentially very significant. It hasn't happened yet, but that is what we are pushing um, towards and I think that that's a very, uh, I'm not going to say it's a likely possibility. I'm going to say it's absolutely undeniable that it is a possibility and it could happen sooner rather than later. This is probably, you probably answered this, but it it's just okay. doesn't click with me. Mm-hmm. Um, why Biden has been polling so low this past year? That's a great question. And the way, the best way to answer that is to see where his weaknesses have been. Joe Biden's real weaknesses were with young people. Okay, we haven't uh, young. I don't think we've talked too much about college, the college loan forgiveness stuff. And I think it's the worst debate on Twitter. Uh, I just, you know, bringing it up and calling it a political issue basically got me crucified. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, even though (laughs) I'm absolutely certain that that is absolutely what it is. Let me give you the scenario of what was going on about six weeks ago. Biden's numbers were were very, very weak, very, very low. He was sitting in the mid-30s, okay, mid and low 30s. Sometimes he was hitting 32. Some of the worst polling numbers since Harry Truman uh, back in the 40s. you got to go back that far to see how bad his numbers were. The main point of weakness was young people. And remember, young people have always had a very tenuous relationship with Joe Biden. Okay, they kind of held their nose for him and voted for him in 2020. They didn't give them the performance that they needed. Uh, that's not atypical of young people. But what we started to see in the polling was this real weakness. In fact, most of the crosstabs were showing that 18 to 24-year-olds, even all people under 30, didn't like him. It wasn't that they were ambivalent. They just didn't like him. The only group that was polling worse than young people for Joe Biden were Republicans. It was that bad. Okay, So if I'm in the West Wing... And I'm advising the president, we've got to come up with something. 
So there's no question that sometime in the spring, they started devising some policy solution about college loan forgiveness. This didn't just happen out of nowhere, folks. It was a political tool to try to coalesce and bring young people, college-educated voters, especially where they've got a real problem, to, and college loan forgiveness was going to be the little nugget that they were going to use to bring them back. Well, on the way to that happening, Dobbs was overturned and completely changed the game. So, look, I, we can debate whether or not the college loan forgiveness, that ten grand, was going to motivate young people to show up to the polls. Probably would have. I think it would have. I think it was a great political tool. I'm not sure about the policy. Don't particularly care because I'm not a policy expert. But politically speaking, I think it was a good tool. But it was not nearly as good a motivator as Dobbs. Why isn't it? Because nothing has been a motivator for 18 to 24-year-olds, especially college-educated voters, especially college-educated women voters, than this issue has in my entire adult lifetime. It probably has not, there probably has not been this significant an issue since probably the Vietnam War. Okay, where we actually changed the United States Constitution to lower the voting age from 21 to 18 because 18 year olds were going off and dying in war. They couldn't even vote. It's that significant. Like, that's what's happening out there. Okay, so but having said that, if I'm Biden's political guy and I'm like, hey, wait a second, like this earthquake happened, the numbers are moving in our direction. Voters are showing up. But we still have this thing that we've been cooking. Why don't we throw this log on the fire too? Right? <laughs> why not? I mean, it makes sense. I would do it. I would yeah. do it. And so why not? You've got it. You've got momentum on your side. You've got wind in your sails. You might as well pull up another sail and, and get a little bit more traction out of it. And that's exactly what, by the way, I think this college loan thing was all about. One more quick thing. And again, jump into the queue, folks, because I'll, I'll be ready to go with a question right after I finish this up. But here's what I also believe about the college loan policy. Uh, I, I don't think it's legal. Okay, I'm not a lawyer. Maybe it is. But from everything I've ever heard, it's the Congress that has you know the control of the purse strings like that. The president can't just come in and be like, oh, we're going to wipe out this debt. That's not the way it works. It comes from Congress. They know that. Biden's people know that. What they're sizing up is a fight with the Republicans. They're looking for the Republicans to say no, because mentally, I guarantee you, anybody who's eligible for $10,000 in loan forgiveness has already spent that money. <laughs> this is human nature. They're just like, wait a second. I used to owe 20000 Now I'm going to owe 10000 Hell yes, I'm voting for Joe Biden. And then the Republicans take it away. I mean, unbelievable, right? People are going to be pissed, like pissed, like seething pissed. It may sound a little bit cynical. I think it's genius politics. I don't know about the policy. I don't care about the policy particularly. I shouldn't say I don't care. I should say I'm not an expert and I'm not that well-versed on it. I weighed in on this as a political issue on Twitter and absolutely got you know beaten up and thrown into a dumpster and you know kind of people left me there to, to, uh, to my own devices. I'm not trying to weigh in on whether it's good policy or not. What I am going to tell you is I think it's very smart politics. It's just they already had a massive break in their direction politically. This was just another log on the fire. Brenda, I hope that was helpful. I appreciate the call. Oh, yeah, it was great. I'll see you next week. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Catherine, you're up. Regular caller, regular visitor. Unmute that button and let's hear what's on your mind. Up into the queue. I'm going to go to Katie back up here, okay? Katie, go ahead and unmute. 
I just wanted to stay kind of on the uh, the uh, student loan debt. Yeah. Is there, because, um, and it could be just complete coincidence that kind of the the rate or polling for um, Tim Ryan in Ohio kind of dropped at the same time that the student loan debt announcement was made. Is there any chance that, you know, independents that were supporting dis- candidates in these swing districts are more upset about this than, you know, you know, that's a great question. And it, it, like, I, you know, um, Lene Erickson, if for those of you that follow politicology and, and, the, and third way, if anybody's really interested in this, she's a moderate Democrat, works on higher education policy. She's actually very critical of Biden's policy. Might want to give her a follow on Twitter. Again, Lene Erickson. Um, she, I haven't spoken to Lene, but, but we're, we're both regular hosts on Ron Steslow's show. She was suggesting that this is going to be more harmful than helpful to Democrats. I don't know whether it is or not. Like I said, I have, I, I'm absolutely certain that I know where this came from as a turnout mechanism. There's no question in my mind that that's all that this was about. If this was pure policy to help people, and I'm not suggesting this doesn't help people. Of course it helps people. But I, go give it to poor people. Go give it to hungry kids. Give it to a single mom with two mouths that she can't feed. Go pay off somebody's payday loan. Like if you're talking about direct impacts to people, give it to people that don't have a college degree and don't have the ability to pay these loans back. Again, I I said I wasn't going to get into the policy, but there I am getting into it. Tim Ryan comes out. Right, running against J.D. Vance in Ohio. Ohio, by the way, is a much more Republican state than people realize. It's a redder state. It's not nearly as competitive as we think it is. Ryan is like, man, this is killing me with my blue-collar, non-college-educated folks. I've got to explain to these people that were starting to finally listen to me that that you know Joe Biden. Why is Joe Biden taking ten thousand dollars of my tax dollars and giving it to somebody with a college degree? And it's a good question. I don't care who you are. It's a good question. It doesn't make you greedy to ask that question. It's fair. It's a, it, that's fair policy questions. I think that it's probably with that demographic not as helpful. But I have also seen polling that shows that some people do support it, non-college educated people. It's basically one of those feel-good policies that probably doesn't have a whole lot of policy impact unless you're getting the ten grand, and then it's got a whole lot of impact. But in terms of, 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 of negative downside, I don't know whether that's the case or not, Katie, to be honest with you, but I would not want that issue matrix popping in to my you know inbox if I'm Tim Ryan and I'm starting to make a, a big move on J.D. Vance and I've got him you know, lined up in the crosshairs. We're about to make a run at this guy and to have that policy drop probably wasn't the most helpful thing. So as a follow-up to that, um, in terms of just the sheer numbers of those, like, um, kind of independent, um, Republican-leaning independents that are, you know, kind of, like, wishy-washy on on Democrats right now because they don't like Trump or whatever, and they are, in terms of numbers, are they um, comparable to to the youth vote, or are they, I mean, because I guess... it seems like you're balancing those. You mean in terms of actual hard raw numbers? Yeah, I, I guess. I yeah, that's a, that's that a good if, question. If you're balancing yeah, that's a, the youth vote yeah, versus the yeah. swing voters or whatever. Okay, that's a, that's a great question. You may not feel like it is. That is exactly the type of question that causes huge fights in campaign headquarters. We, this, this are, and, and they're good fights. These are the exact fights. And, and, and I don't think I've mentioned this, but in, in, in October – 
when the Lincoln Project documentary, Lincoln Project documentary is going to come out, you're going to see in real time me and Lucas and Zach and Connor and the data team having these fights. Where the way I would, I run my campaigns, what you what you're going to see is I make my staff members make the case and argue to me why we should spend how much money going after certain demographics. And one of the prime questions is. How much does that actually turn into actual real votes, hard votes, raw votes totals, not percentages? Are there more non-college educated blue-collar workers that you want me to spend our last dollar on, or do you want me to go after 18 to 24-year-old women? That's a question you're asking. It is a fantastic question. It is exactly the question that a campaign strategist and a political consultant has to wrestle with. And you damn well better be right, because if you're not right, you're not going to make it in this profession. The short answer is nine times out of ten in that scenario, you're going to go with the blue-collar worker. And the reason why is 18 to 24-year-olds, even though it may be a larger segment of the vote, doesn't show up and turn out to, to vote as much as that blue-collar worker will. Not all the time. There's some other overlying demographics, too. Keep in mind, 60% of American voters don't have a college degree. Most voters are non-college educated voters. So there's a huge swath of 18 to 24-year-olds that never went to college. Okay, So, that, so, so there, when you're talking about non-college educated voters, some of those are going to fit into that 18 to 24-year-old's demographic. But in terms of raw numbers, the biggest voter groups – Non-college educated voters are 60%. White voters are still like 75, 78% of the electorate. So white non-college educated voters, even though they're shrinking as a share of the overall population, they are going to be the dominant demographic of voters for the lifetime of everybody on this call. For the rest of our lives, White non-college-educated voters are going to be the most significant block in American politics. That helpful? Yeah, it just it kind of throws into question the the you know utility of of the the student loan loan debt. And I have no problem with student loan debt. I mean, I think helping people wherever they are is great. But, yeah. Um, the, re- I, the 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 reason they're doing it is they're getting both. That, and that's what, that was what Biden's speech was about today, is they're firing on all cylinders. They're like, we're going to get independence. We're getting young people. We're getting Republican women crossover. We're getting our Democratic base to turn out. They're like, unload the cannon. Fire on all fronts. And that's different. That's an offensive strategy. That's what I meant by offense. They are literally firing everything that they've got at the electorate. The Republicans are like, holy shit. We need to get our blue-collar, male, non-college-educated base to the polls. It's our last and only hope. That's the two speeches you saw tonight. Those are the two different Americas they were talking to. I would much rather be the Democrats in this position, even with the historical trend line breaking against them. But that's what you saw tonight. That question that is being asked is precisely, precisely that. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Katie, thank you for joining us. Catherine is back up on stage we're going to see if we can get that mute button undone this time i think it was stuck Catherine, what's your question how are you good how are you good good to talk to you again me too um i wanted to go back to the polls and 
I know you talk about the movement in the polls and it makes sense that, you know, that makes that you should watch movement, but it's never presented as a plot over time. We just look at static numbers all the time. And I was just wondering why that is. Well, that's an interesting way to put it because that's I don't look at it as static uh, in time. In fact, that a, a poll is just a data point. And if you don't look at it as a rolling average, if you don't look at the trend line, it's really not telling you anything. To your point, where do you get that information? Um, you can get it on Real Clear Politics. You can get it on Five Thirty Eight. Covers it. Uh, Nate Silver actually has trend lines. If you don't uh, mm-hmm. go to Real Clear Politics, by the way, um, check out that site. If you're a real political junkie, and by the way, I probably shouldn't tell you guys this because if you get turned on to Real Clear Politics, you're going to be hooked on this thing till two or three in the morning, <laughs> and, and you're going to you're going to blame me because you're going to be like, man, why did he why did he show me this stuff? Um, that's that's you're going to find a lot of really good stuff on Real Clear Politics. Um, but but if you go there or or to Nate Silver's five thirty eight, you're going to see the rolling averages. It's going to give you the trend line. Uh, to your point, you're exactly right. A poll is just one data point. Unless you see a series of it, you're not seeing movement. And that's the movement I am talking about. I probably should be more clear about that, Catherine. Thanks for asking the question. Uh, go, look at 538. Look at Real Clear Politics. You're going to see the, the moving averages, the trend lines. And when I'm talking about movement, um, I, I am looking at movement over time. So you, you're teaching me something here. I probably, I, I sometimes I think everybody is on the same wavelength with me. I've got to remember that's not the case. And I apologize in advance for turning you onto these junky sites because you're going to have so much data. It's going to freak you out probably going into the midterms. And sometimes you can overdo the data. So be careful with that. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Catherine. Bye. Bye-bye. Peggy, unmute that button. Peggy. Her button's stuck too. There we go. Uh- Hi, Mike. How are you? Good. How you doing? I'm doing great. Good to hear your voice. Good to good to hear your voice one to one like this with yeah. everybody else in the room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so two questions. Okay. And first, well, first off, thank you for starting off with that Biden speech because I was lit up myself. I was on fire listening to that. He was great, wasn't he? Democrats have been waiting to see spine without yeah. me, and it's going to fire up the base a lot. I think. I think you're right. I think you brought some fire. He did. Okay. So I want to um, ask how you think Beto is doing in the Hispanic community right now. I saw he had a Zoom meeting earlier in the week with Eva Longoria and Dolores Hortez and other important members in the community. And the campaign really looks like they're organizing and going to be doing a lot more serious outreach within that community. Yeah, you know, I was critical early on when the Myra Flores special election happened, and I was saying, you know, they've built zero infrastructure, um, mm-hmm. and they hadn't. I mean, it's just, it's just a fair assessment. I, I don't think my criticism was, was you know, over the top. They, they hadn't. How else do you, how else do you lose the second highest concentration Hispanic district in the country to a Republican unless you don't have an operation? And they didn't. I think the good news is they've clearly adjusted from that. And I think they realized and heard enough from people saying, you're going to have to invest big here. Now, there's a couple things about Beto's campaign that makes me think that he's probably got 
uh, more he may be in more contention than than would otherwise be the case. The first is he is pursuing a very interesting strategy. I'm not sure if it's the right one or the wrong one, and I'm not going to second guess him. I'm not going to armchair quarterback him, but <laughs> I'm not sure that I would be doing it. And that is going to to really rural areas. Okay, he's going to these deep rural areas and he's having these town halls and his social media team is phenomenal. They're putting out these kind of people that get converted and asking these tough questions. He answers them well. He builds some rapport and they're like, I've never voted for a Republican. Um, Now I am. I'm voting for Beto. It's really good stuff. If you're not following him, you ought to do it just to get a master class in how to use social media. Now, if I were if I were a, a, a consultant running a Democrat race in Texas. I'm not sure that rural red MAGA country is the best place for my consult, my candidates to be. Um, I could absolutely be proven wrong, and maybe they are going to prove me wrong. I, you know, in many ways, I hope they do. Mm-hmm. Where, I, where I would be focusing on is that rural, or, I'm sorry, that urban Hispanic vote in Houston, in Dallas, Fort Worth, in um, in in El Paso. You know, in the larger, larger areas, Austin, in larger, larger, denser areas where that vote, that Hispanic vote is still blue. Um, The reason why is because the actual yield you get, the actual return on investment of actual hard, raw votes is pretty de minimis when you're out in rural country. You're going to convert Mm -hmm. some of those deep MAGA counties, but not many. And they're so sparse. And it takes up so much of your candidate's time. Like I can go to four or five events in Houston in a day where it would take me, you know, I can get to one county out in, out in rural, you know, Nowheresville, Texas. Um, and, and there's just not that many votes. Now, they may be taking into account the fact that they, they believe that the Democratic base would come home. And they have, by the way, I'm not saying that they predicted Dobbs, but it happened. And right. and if they get that vote anyway, and now they're running offense in deep MAGA country in these ruby red counties, they're going to look pretty damn smart. And, and, and the truth of the matter is they are starting to look pretty damn smart. I just don't know that I would have bet the farm, if you will, on going to these counties that early because unless you, you received a once-in-a-generation earthquake, it's probably not going to happen. But it happened. So, I mean, how critical of it can I be? Now, Hispanic voters specifically, I think what the problem that Democrats had with Hispanics, and it was very real, has largely been corrected again because of Dobbs. I think that that is really going to have a much bigger impact than most people think. And I think most of the work is going to be done for him. And so, like I said, more out of luck than strategic planning, and I don't take anything away from his consultants. They're probably extremely bright, savvy, smart, clever people. Um, but there's nothing that they could have contrived, nothing that Biden could have contrived, nothing the Democrats could have contrived that was as powerful a motivator as the Supreme Court overturning Roe that has motivated people to show up and go to the polls. I see Beto really focused in on that and getting women and getting women on videos. The social media is incredible. Yeah, and- they're doing they're doing a really good job. But look, if there's a candidate that can a Democratic candidate that can win in Texas, it's probably Beto O'Rourke. Um, <laughs> but Texas is a tough state. It's a tough, yeah. tough state. So you've got to be measured, work really, really hard. But but, you know, go in with your eyes wide open, as we say. OK, you have time for one more. 
I think I got one more. Zena uh, is behind you. Hang with me, Zena. Peggy, go ahead and ask. Let's do okay. another one. Okay, it'd, pro- it'd probably be a quick one, but I don't That's know. That's okay. So, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm in New York, and I'm pretty focused on that race with Matt Costelli and Elise Stefanik. He's a very strong candidate. I just yeah. don't know. It's I, I, I phone banked into that area for Tedger Cobb, and it's a pretty tough area in New York. Mm-hmm. Um. But he may be making some ground, being some, you know, being a veteran and ex-CIA, and he's coming out very much on offense. Yeah, and again, those are the types of candidates that you want for a whole host of reasons. Look, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's still advantage Stefanik. Uh, I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. But look, the, the work you're doing now in those areas in your community, and sometimes that's exciting because it's not out of reach, right? It's possible you got mm-hmm. a good candidate, and in a good year. Um, these, those are the seats that flip and Stefanik has made herself a lightning rod, right? She's leaning into this stuff really, really super hard as a way of climbing up the Republican ladder. That's not the way most, uh, even Republicans, rank and file Republicans feel. They're certainly not independents, and that's where her real trouble is going to be. I hope you guys are calling independents because I would love to get your feedback on what those phone calls are like, calling against Stefanik with independents in that congressional district. Man, that would be a one-person focus group that would give all of us a lot of data. So if you do that this week, make sure you call back next week and give us give us <laughs> some feedback, give us an update on how that's going. I think Stefanik is probably going to be fine. Again, that's one of, going to be one of those early seats. If you're sitting in the Midwest, the Mountain States, or the West Coast, like me, and you see Stefanik go down uh, early, it's going to be a, a, a very big blue wave. And I don't want to suggest that a blue wave is 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 going to happen. I'm not saying that. Like I right. said, I still think Republicans hold the House by a slim margin. That could change, probably will change. My gut tells me it's moving towards a more positive direction, but I hate to go by my gut. Okay, Politics is an art and a science. I try to follow the science as long as I can. That's what I did on the Lincoln Project for those of you guys that followed me is my job was to be as cool and collected and tell you exactly what I was seeing, even though, of course, I wanted, you know, Biden to win in a you know, 400 vote electoral route. That wasn't going to happen. Right. I had to, I had to, had to, had to, had to be honest, be upfront and be straight. The data is still telling me that Republicans um, are in a historical trend line to take the House. Um, if Stefanik goes down. You're going to see uh, a whole lot of Republicans going down. Can it happen? Yes. Is it likely? Probably not at this point. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you. Bet, Thanks for following. Appreciate your support out there. Oh, well, anytime. You kept me calm all during 2020. Trust me. Your cool head was appreciated. <laughs> Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. It means the world to me. Okay. All right. Zena, I hope I got that name right. You're up on stage. Just unmute. How do you say that name? Um, Yes, you got that right. Um, so um, first, I just want to second what Peggy said. You have kept us all calm, I guess, oh. in 2020. So thank, thank you, you so much. That. It means the world to me. I appreciate that support. Um, and my question is, full disclosure, I grew up in a dictatorship. So mm-hmm. to me, I'm extra sensitive to um, the possibility of us losing our democracy. Yeah. Um, oh, you still there? Can you guys hear me? Can you guys, can you hear me? I can hear you now. I think I lost you. Um, Yeah, I don't know what happened. But um, it just constantly feels like we're one election away from losing our democracy. And um, even if we keep the Senate right now, um, I mean, we're bound to lose elections at some point. Yeah. How 
I mean, when do we, when does the fight, the constant battle stop? And when does Donald Trump just go away? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great question. And it's one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and worrying about. It's also why, incidentally, I have spent so much time going to fight uh, and help democratic efforts with a small d abroad, right? I went to Ukraine. I went to uh, Brazil, just got back from Brazil, because if America's democracy falters, we're going to be reliant on the success of other democracies to help us continue this fight. And I just felt like a lot of my efforts were best utilized in other parts of the world, while other people like all of you were, were fighting the good fight here. So I'm back here for the last part of this stretch. It's not the last place I'll be. I think for the next 10 years or so, this fight is going to be a global fight. But let me answer your question more specifically. Um, look, Donald Trump is a unique threat to this republic. He is not the only threat. There is a populist nationalist element that has taken root that is extremely and extraordinarily dangerous. From a data perspective, it is clear to me that there are some really important correlations, especially as it relates to white evangelical Christianity. Incidentally, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, being critical of, of, of anybody's religion here. I'm just saying the data shows that the one demographic that is overwhelmingly pro-Trump and is demonstrating strong nationalist tendencies with a strong correlation to white identity is evangelical Christianity. By the way, Bolsonaro in Brazil, strongest base of support is evangelical Christianity, which is growing by leaps and bounds in Brazil. Okay, This is a global phenomenon, and it is an area that the Russians have learned to exploit by using fake information and exacerbating the tension in society by correlating evangelical Christianity with nationalism and unfortunately also with white identity. So it's a great question. What that tells me then, if you buy into that theory, and there's a, a lot of evidence to suggest that, that, that the, these correlations exist, we are also working our way through a demographic transformation where we are becoming less white as a country, we are becoming less evangelical as a country, and we are becoming less old as a country. So as all three of those change every election cycle, the tension grows less, okay? 2020 was an absolutely pivotal election, I think, as we all know, right? Everybody was holding their breath and saying, if we lose this one, we probably lose the republic. This election is not as important, but it's really, really, really important, okay? And we can't rest on our laurels here. The numbers look good, but I actually believe, and this is not going to be a really popular take, okay? A lot of you guys are going to get really pissed off at Mike Madrid here, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe the best place for democracy, small d, and for the Democrats, with a large d, is for the Democrats to pick up a seat or two in the Senate and to lose the House by a small majority, like a 10-seat majority. The reason why is that will significantly strengthen Joe Biden's chance for re-election. Significantly. Because that extremism, which will be most dysfunctional in the House, especially with a small majority, will be balanced and protected by a Democratic majority on the Senate side. 
And while it may slow down Biden's agenda, he's gotten 80% of what he wanted to do done. He will look like the rational voice of reason while the Republican extremism shows its ugly head continually. And as it does that, it will strengthen the Democratic Party's growth. It will strengthen Joe Biden's position heading into the reelection effort. And it will exacerbate tensions on the American right and have it start to implode, as I mentioned earlier. Now, some might say that's irresponsible to suggest that might be the case because you're putting an anti-democratic with a small d force into power in one branch of government. And that's bad enough. That's a fair argument. But what I will say is politically from a historical trend, I think that's the best positioning for the Democratic Party. I think that's the best positioning for Joe Biden specifically. I think Rachel, I think, I think, I think a 10 seat gain by Republicans in the House guarantees Joe Biden election. I think it will be a brutal, horrible, ugly two years. There will be impeachments in the House that will go nowhere in the Senate of Garland, of Biden. There will be Hunter Biden will be brought up for investigations. It will be awful. It will be awful. But I think it guarantees the Democrats reelection. So again, having said that, long answer, I think that it, we are we are every year that goes by, <coughs> demographically, we are actually weakening the anti-democratic, pro-authoritarian tendencies that we have. I have been saying I think we are in what I call two decades of fire, twenty years of this tumultuous demographic transformation that started in 2016. We're six years into this. We are going to survive it. Um, It may get a little bit worse. The next six years could be really, really rough. But after about four or five years, those vestiges will remain, but they will not be as significant a threat to our democratic institutions as they were over the past four or five, six years. That's just my opinion. Well, thank you. That gives me hope. Yeah, be hopeful. Don't ever don't ever not be hopeful. There's more of us than there are of them. And when you start to hear speeches like Biden's tonight, you start to f- see people rally. Now, if the Democrats do hold off the Republicans, like I said, there's a very good chance that they just implode. As I was saying, I think it could be really significant. That makes it very, very difficult for Republicans to organize and pull this constituency back together. And the worst may be behind us. I don't know that that's the case. But at least in the near term, when I'm looking at the data and the demographics, I do believe that most of us will see much better days. It's going to take a little while and it's not going to be easy. But as I also counseled during the Lincoln Project, this type of disruption, this type of chaos, this type of stress forges a nation. It makes us a stronger, better people. Nations are, you know this from from wherever country you came from, a, a nation, a country is forged a national character is forged through conflict it's not it's not forged part of what we're dealing with is the luxury of not having any real conflicts or any real threats to our country over the last 30 years right a lot of what these people these maga people think are is freedom is like or tyranny is government telling you wear a mask it's like embarrassing like that's not tyranny you know what tyranny really is and without that lack, without that conflict, it's hard for a people to come together as a nation and have a unifying front. So I, I feel that in many ways we are going to look back and be blessed 
that we were able to win this domestic threat to our freedom because it's going to make us a stronger, better people that appreciates our freedom more. I sure hope so. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. You bet. Thank you for the question. Dina, you're up. You're in the shoot. Unmute and ask away. In the meantime, go ahead. Others, you can jump up on stage. we got a good group oh, great. here. Yeah, Dina, how are can you? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Right. Yeah. Nice. Okay, so I wanted to ask you something a little obscure. Okay. But, um, I was at Democratic Governors Association meeting in July, and there was a really interesting candidate there in Arkansas, Chris Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Joe Cunningham's really interesting. Do either of those guys have a path? They're like straight out of central casting. They're great candidates, but you yeah. know, yeah. Ar- it's Arkansas, right? Arkansas. Yeah, it's Arkansas. Ar- Arkansas's Arkansas tough. Yeah. Ar- yeah, guys, if, if if those guys are winning, if 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 Democrats are winning R plus fifteen seats, it's going to be a wipeout the size of which we've never seen before. And I don't, I, don't, I don't say that to take away hope. Like I said, I think it's always important to work for candidates that you believe in. But R plus 15 is, that's like, yeah, that's tough. <laughs> that's really tough. Barring some sort of a scandal, um, and even then, you know, it, it's tough, right? A lot of these guys will vote for convicts or, you know, people who get into trouble late in these election cycles because they're just partisanship has become our tribal identity. Um, I, I'm never going to say no one's got a chance, but in an R plus 15 district in a midterm election, if they're winning, everybody's winning. Like it will be a route unlike anything since probably 1994 when the Republicans took over Congress for the first time in 40 years. So I, I don't see it. I hate to, to, to be that guy just from a data perspective that what you're really looking for is can they pull to within single digits? If they're losing by six, seven, eight points, they can come back in 2024 in a presidential high turnout year when the Republicans are presumably going to be in disarray and win those seats. And that we do that often, by the way, as consultants, we tell our candidates, we want you to run, run really hard. Don't go negative. You've got a great profile. We're going to lose by six, seven, eight points but we're going to be really well positioned to win the next election. We do that a lot. And that may be the overall strategy. I'm not suggesting that it is, but it might be. Okay. All right. Yep. Thanks for the question. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks. You bet. Craig, you're up on stage. Thanks for waiting so long. Appreciate your patience. Go ahead and unmute and ask away. In the meantime, others go ahead and jump up there. We still got a big crowd and it's still growing. Incidentally, look, we've been running for a while here until uh, Craig, Craig gets a mute button unstuck. Share share this room. Let's just keep going for a little while. We'll get all those questions answered. Sounds like you guys are sticking, so I'll keep answering questions as long as my voice holds out. It would be a huge favor if you share right now on Twitter that the conversation's going on. See if we can't get the, the, uh, the crowd bigger and keep going. But until then, Craig, you found the button. Brother, how can I help you out? What kind of, what's on your mind? Mike, how are you? And I appreciate the patience, my man. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Thank you for being on stage so long. Thank you. Hey, no worries. Hey, I'm, so I'm a resident out here in Arizona. I've been here for four years. And I want to know how you feel or how you see the um, Arizona governor's election turnout. Great turn question. Out. Can I ask you a couple questions first? Sure. Where, did you, where were you before Arizona, Craig? Uh, I was uh, Joliet, Illinois, Chicago. Illinois. Okay, so kind of escaping kind of the winters. Are you going to retire in Arizona? Exactly. Well, Good. I, I have young kids, so my kids okay. are you know ten and twelve. Okay. 
Good. And they're in, yeah, okay, okay. And back in the 1990 election cycle, uh, going back a ways, and I've seen a lot of changes there. Arizona, um, if any of you guys remember following me uh, back in the Lincoln Project, that's one of my favorite states uh, because I do believe it's a bluer state than most people recognize. And the reason why is the last six election cycles, it has been moving towards a purple or a blue position. And that trend line is really important to me. The two states that I'm most hopeful for that are clearly battleground states are Arizona, my number one, and Georgia. Because both of those states, Sunbelt states, incidentally, uh, are getting um, emigres, like Craig, from other states, coming in that tend to bring a politics that are more blue-oriented. Both of those states are building economies where there are more high-tech, college-educated workers, and the Latinos in Arizona remain like the Latinos in California, which are about 75% Democrat. Um, and you are starting to see those margins of those MAGA Republicans really, really start to shrink. And you're starting to see it not be anomalous at all to have Democratic senators in both of these states. Those stand in contrast to Ohio and Wisconsin which are moving more red, by the way. And they're moving red for the exact opposite reasons, is those states are not building new economy workers. They're not, in, they're not the emigres there, the people moving in are not necessarily high-tech, college-educated workers. They tend to be blue-collar workers that are holding on to the political attitudes, the political views of the Republican Party that maintain its base. I don't mean to get too far off topic here. You have two candidates that represent the extreme right of the current Republican Party, and they're both very, very vocal about it. That's not helpful to their, to their candidacies. They also don't care, as you know. And there was also, I think, a rather spirited fight uh, for Carrie Lake's seat with she won by, you know, 55, 45. That's that's. That the, the when I, people say like oh she won pretty big that's that's technically true but when you're looking at that race the way I'm viewing it and there might be some Pollyanna in here I might be a little bit naive about it but I'm looking for the vote share that did not vote for Carrie Lake I'm seeing 45 percent of Republicans did not vote for the MAGA extremist now 80 percent of those will go and vote for her because she's the Republican and she's better than the Democrat under any circumstances. But if that's true, there's still 20% that won't vote for her. That's huge. That's devastating. Remember, Carrie Lake has to get 100% of the Republican base in Arizona and basically get probably 40% of the independents. If she doesn't get 100% of the Republican base, she's in trouble. Now she's probably with the, so so if I'm if I'm running against her if I'm running a campaign against her I'm first going to target and check the movement the softness of those Republican voters that voted against her in the primary and see what kind of an issues matrix I've got and I guarantee you dollar to a donut that the people that did not vote for her those Republicans were more female and more college educated than not 
And with the Dobbs decision that came up, with the Uvalde shooting, with the January 6th stuff, and with this new phraseology, which has clearly been poll-tested with these constituencies, this MAGA Republican extremism. I mean, Carrie Lake represents that. She's like the poster child for that. That is going to hurt her. So I believe, like I did in 2020, and I said, if we lose Florida and we lose North Carolina, as long as we bring home the Great Lakes state, I'm confident we're going to win Arizona. It's going to be tight, but we're going to pull it out. That's exactly what happened in 2020. People who were listening to me back then uh, will remember that that's exactly what I called. I said, look, if it gets late and it comes down to Arizona, we're going to be okay. I believe that will still be the case in these midterm elections. I think that... The Democrats will win the governorship in Arizona. I think that Kelly will hold on to the Senate seat in Arizona. I think that the extremist nature of those candidates um, are going to push out just enough Republican women from the Scottsdale you know, suburbs to say, I'm not going to do this. Um, but it's also going to be polarizing against those independents. And there's a strong independent streak in Arizona, as you know. Um, so I'm, I, I, I remain optimistic about Arizona. It's still one of my favorite states. I think it, it's in a stronger position to stay in the blue column than it is, than it is not. And, um, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, that's, that's outstanding news. Cause you know, from a guy who watches the news, I'm seeing, you know, 10 to one GOP commercials versus mm-hmm. one Katie Hobbs commercial and her, her commercials don't seem that powerful. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not saying that they got to be so negative, like Carrie, like Carrie Lake campaigns have been, but I was just wondering how you think Katie Hobbs, what do you think of Katie Hobbs as a strategy so far? It's been pretty quiet. Um, I'll let you speak, Mike. And thank you. I appreciate thank you so much. No, Craig, thank you so much for the question. It's a great one. And I promise you, we're going to, we're going to talk a lot more about Arizona as, as we get closer because What's happening in Arizona is also going to be very indicative. It is going to be a bellwether state. He asks the right question. By the way, if you guys want to jump up, we still got a big crowd here. You guys are still listening in, so jump in if you still want to uh, or ask some of those questions. I'm happy to, to, to keep going again as long as my voice holds up. He's asking the right question. And again, I'm going to answer it very strategically. Hobbs running against Lake. What do I think of Hobbs' campaign? Let me tell you what I think about Hobbs' campaign. I think Hobbs should be making Carrie Lake the issue as much as she possibly can in the same way Biden is trying to make Trump the campaign. I'm not too sure it's a bad thing that Hobbs' campaign is more quiet and more subdued. I don't know that that's a a concerted strategy. I haven't seen the internals. I haven't looked at it that close. I will start looking at some of this data a lot closer and give you some of my impressions. We'll probably start talking about specific commercials and advertisements, and we will definitely be talking about polling. But I do know this. As long as it's a referendum on Kerry Lake, I would rather be Hobbs. If I were if, if, if and Kerry Lake is going to do everything she can to make Hobbs the bad person in this thing, right? It's the, in an era of negative partisanship. You want to both vilify and dirty up and mess up your opponent and make it a referendum on their extremism. The problem for Republicans heading into this environment, again, full full circle, bringing it back to McCarthy's speech and Biden's speech tonight, is the American public and the American electorate, by pretty good margins, are starting to believe that it is the Republicans that are the extremists. That is very uncommon. In fact, I don't know that it's ever happened before 
when the party in power of both houses of Congress and the White House are not viewed as the extremist party. Look what happened to Donald Trump in 2018. Got his ass handed to him. Look what happened to Barack Obama in 2010. Got his ass handed to him. Look what happened to George W. Bush in 2002. Got his ass handed to him. Well, look what happened to, to Bill Clinton in 1994. Got his ass handed to him. A lot of asses being handed to a lot of politicians, right? There's a trend line, folks, and that's why we look at the historical data. This stuff matters. The history matters. It's easy to get caught up in the drama of the moment and try to look at candidate quality and what did this person say or what did that person say. The truth is most of these elections are going to happen on the margins. A wide swath of Republicans, even moderate Republicans, are going to vote for Carrie Lake, even though they know she's batshit crazy because they're Republicans. They don't care. Same thing with the Democrats. The Democrats will behave the exact same way. The outcomes of these races are very, very much on the margins. And so I just gave you the historical trend line going back from 1994. Okay? In, in, in the 30 years since 1994, almost every race, almost every race, with the exception of maybe two or three, were rejections of the party in power, including 2020. In fact, it really hit a, a white-hot you know, point in 2020 because voters rejected Donald Trump at the top and they rejected the kind of the, the defund the police wokeism, scary part of the Democratic Party uh, in Congress and actually in the highest turnout election in American history voted for Republicans down ticket. OK, that tell you have to you have to step back. You have to to remove your immediate partisan reaction to what I just said and say, how as a political professional would I take that data point? What is that data telling us? And what the data is saying is voters vote against extremes. And so in that case, having Carrie Lake being the dominant person in Arizona is probably hurting Carrie Lake. And so Hobbs is probably going to be doing a good job of sitting back and waiting. Carrie Lake, I guarantee you, all of that money being spent right now from the Republican Governors Association to boost her up is trying to move up her positives because she has probably very, very, very high negatives coming out of a bloody primary and saying some of the batshit crazy things that that woman says because she's freaking nuts. So I would rather be Hobbs than Lake at this point in the cycle. I can't speak to the efficacy of their campaigns, but I would not be afraid of being Hobbs not having the media presence because it's probably hurting Carrie Lake at this point in time. Fair enough. Well, that's fair enough, my man. And uh, you're right about one thing. She is freaking insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's crazy. So and, and people, yeah, people will see that crazy and they will reject it. At least that's the hope. Keep using the phrase MAGA Republican. Craig, thank you for the, for the question. Thanks for joining us. And I'm going to jump over to Renee, who is a regular caller uh, here on mic drop. Renee. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Good. Good to hear you again from you again. I um I have a question um that you know circles back to um the focus on um evangelical Christians and the influence that they're having mm -hmm. um as far as the the whole MAGA movement is concerned. Yeah. And and my question is, you know, it, it, is it really Donald Trump that has you know? Um, motivated them to get loud or has the, it, is it truly um, been a, a gradual shift 
um, in that regard for decades. Um, because I, it, for me, it's like, if, if I look back at, you know, Reagan marrying the party to the moral majority and, and those kinds of things, it seems like this has been a, an undercurrent for a very long time. And, and then Donald Trump steps in and he turns up the fire. Um, and yeah. I, I'm anxious to hear your point of view on that. It's a great question. And I think the answer is, yeah, of course, it's been brewing for a while. Uh, look, I, I think this predates Reagan. I think this goes back. Uh, look, I, and, uh, look, I'm not an expert, although I'm, I'm learning a lot more about I, I've studied race and politics. I've studied ethnicity and politics. I've studied class and politics. I, I, I teach a class at USC called you know race, class and partisanship. I understand those things very, very well. I've been studying them for decades evangelicalism um, is a little bit unique to me um, because evangelical Christianity, especially American Christianity, is, is there, there's, there's, there's almost always been, and I want to be careful with this because I'm not an expert, there's all, but, but, but the way I see it, there's almost always been a nationalist, nationalist element to American Protestantism, American Christianity, since at least the Great Awakening— Right in the in the mid mid late eighteen hundreds, mm-hmm. and you start to see the development of a lot of these national religions, Mormonism, and and um, a lot of these religions really really which get get their start in eastern Pennsylvania with the opening of the Erie Canal. Really fascinating, fascinating way to look back as the economic driver of 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 American Christianity. The Southern Baptist Conference, in large part, become, becomes the Southern Baptist Conference during during slavery. Right? It wasn't entirely about slavery, but, it, but, but I mean, you got to be honest about look at it and saying it's largely an institution that splits off, becomes its own conference, in 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 part at least to to defend the institution of slavery. Right? That's the notion of 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 a large swath of the origins of 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 a, the largest Protestant sect in in America. So you you have to say that there, there these correlations exist. The origin stories of some of these faiths exist, and so they're not new. It's not that the politicians welded them together; it's the politicians were tapping into something that already existed, and that used to be what you know. The, when the, when the Southern Baptist Conference became the Southern Baptist Conference, of course, it was the Democratic Party. That was many, many, many years ago. I'm not trying to equate the current party with that one. But what happens with the Southern strategy, and when Lyndon Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act, he knows he's basically writing off the South. And the Republicans are like, we're more than happy to lean into that and take that constituency. And so they have to start melding the corporate interests of the Republican Party as it existed as a Northeastern Wall Street party with Southern conservatives, social, religious conservatives. And there, therein was really the beginnings in the mid-1960s of that unholy alliance between the two. But there's always been, I believe, a correlation between white nationalism, white supremacy, and a lot of evangelical Christianity. Now, I think if people want to push back and say that's that's you know discriminatory against evangelicals, that's that's fair. And I'm, what I'm saying is, I want to learn more. I'm not an expert on it, but from the little that I have seen over the past couple of years of really looking at it, it seems pretty clear to me. 
Um, and again, I'm, I'm open to the fact that I can be, I'm, I may be wrong here. But the reason why I think evangelical Christianity is really radicalizing the way it is is because you're also seeing white America shrink. And when you correlate your ethnic and your religious identity and your race is shrinking as a share of the population and the culture is changing and transforming in a way that is also marginalizing your religion, the two main pillars of your identity are under attack. They feel threatened. All of the constructs that you create in your mind to give you the survival skills to get you through this world are weakening and are viewed as being under attack. That is the way a wide, wide, wide swath of America feels right now. That is literally what Kevin McCarthy's speech was about. The reason why immigration is such a potent, emotional, visceral issue is because it threatens white superiority. In a time, for the first time in American history, where whites are no longer going to be the majority in our lifetimes, that threatens a huge swath of people's identity. Maybe not you, maybe not me, but a lot of people. And when you start to see significant social changes, gay marriage, the legalization of marijuana, um, abortion rights, all of these social um, issues which don't comport with your religious view of the world, and you throw both of those into a beaker and shake it up, it's starting to explode and foam over and cause a lot of, a lot of social foment. And that is really, I think, explains so much of what is happening in 2022, especially when, you, when we, we trust the politicians to, to not exacerbate or throw a fuse on this and, and light it up for their own personal political gains. That's unfortunately what they do. Then you throw in a Fox News, which monetizes outrage and fear and anger and use it to make their audience more reliant on them so that they can sell more uh, revenue, get more revenue through ad dollars. And you've got this really, really dysfunctional recipe for for social disaster and chaos and upheaval. And I, I genuinely believe that's that's America and where we're at it, it, at this moment in 2022. And it's also why I believe to to Zena's Zena's call question earlier, it's going to get better. But there's going to be a demographic explanation for it. I've completely given up on the politicians' ability to to to, to unite us and bring us together. That doesn't mean I don't think that Joe Biden was sincere, but he's not a dumb man. He know he he didn't convince any MAGA Republicans to be like, oh yeah, Trump's a bad guy tonight. He wasn't trying. He wasn't trying to do that. He was speaking like a president, thank God, and saying, "I'm going to be a president for everybody, and I want us to come together." But there's no place for hate. He's drawing the line. Look at the last president. Donald Trump never said, "I'm a president for everybody." He's like, "Let's take money away from from blue cities." Like it's the Democrats are the problem. They're evil. Let's attack them. Let's destroy, you know, blue states were, were, were bad. Blue cities were bad. Like he's literally fomenting the divisiveness in our country. And I'm not going to suggest also that Biden didn't do a little bit of that. And I, I think all politicians have to do that, especially when there's an existential threat to your country, like what we're seeing with Donald Trump and Trumpism. I, I think it's fully justified. In fact, I applaud it. I think it was great. 
But he also couched it in unifying terms by saying, for those of us that still believe in the American experiment, for those of us that still believe in democracy, for those that still believe in the Constitution and law and order, America's best days are ahead of us, and we will rally, and we will fight for it, and we will win. For those of you that reject all of that, you are an extremist, and we are going to start calling you that. Because you are choosing consciously not to join the American family, you're choosing to undermine it. I think it was well overdue. I thought it was awesome. Um, uh, back to your question, I remain very concerned about evangelical Christianity, not because I don't think that there are good Christian followers of faith there. I think a lot of them have left. I don't think enough quote-unquote moderate Christians stand up and call it out, unfortunately, and mm-hmm. a wide, wide swath of this religion uh, or the the various shades of this religion have been radicalized and it's becoming more violent, more destructive, more angry, and more neo-fascistic the way the president just said. I think he's exactly right. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And I guess, you know, when I was looking at, and and I know that, you know, you're you're right about this definitely predating um, Ronald Reagan. I think that, um, one of the things that was significant about, um, well, the late seventies, if, if you look at that and you look at Nixon, um, courting the Dixiecrats, you know, kind of wrap that, that white nationalism into the party as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention itself had just overhauled their own leadership, ousting centrist leaders and, you know, uh, electing much more conservative leaders, uh, in their own um, governing bodies when, um, you know, Reagan was hand in hand with the moral majority. So I think that, you know, had a lot to do with it is that, you know, they, they that whole organization itself had shifted to the far right as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point about Joe Biden and the way he approached the situation, one of the nuances or, or one of the statements that I felt like was was needed and very impactful in his in his speech was he made a distinct differentiation between MAGA Republicans and mainstream Republicans. He did make that distinction. And I, th- I think that's kind of his way of saying, you know what, I understand that this is not all of you, you know, yep. that there are there, there's sanity left um, on the right to some degree. And, there, you know, it's like you you talked about, um, you know, with Liz Cheney and that 20 percent there. Um, cause I think that's who those people are. And I think, you know, even if they aren't going to vote for Democrats it, as, as a country, we have to keep talking to those people because I think that's the key to rebuilding a healthy party, you know, of opposition. Yeah. I think that's right. And I, I, yeah, I look, I think it's an interesting perspective. It is, it, it, it must go with some recognition that the president began the speech by saying, let me be clear, there's a distinction here. The, the, not all Republicans are extremists. Right. But, but if you choose this path, you are choosing consciously. Look, if you're, if we're six years into this, okay? If you're still with Donald Trump, you're not going to change your mind. Right. And, and, and this was a big strategic decision we had to make in 2022. And this was this was really heated. You know, Jennifer Horn and I went really went back and forth on this is do we try to persuade people? Do you use a carrot and try to try to bring them over and convince them of of the, the better way? Do you try to convince them? 
is you try to persuade these Trump supporters that what they're doing is wrong. Do you try to persuade these evangelical Christians that they might not be they might not be following the footsteps of Christ? Do, do you try to persuade people who have followed one of the most vulgar, vile, angry, vitriolic, demeaning, petty men that this country has ever produced, let alone put them into the White House, that that there's a, a better America ahead of us through th- through a different path? And my answer was no. Yeah. My answer was let's hammer it. Hammer, hammer, hammer at this granite block because we only need a few slivers to pop off in order to win. We're not going to convince these people. And that I think is what we heard tonight. The president began and ended by saying, "It's not all of you, but this is a moment of t- it's a time for choosing," as Reagan once said. This is a time for choosing. You can continue to choose to pursue and be fooled and, and, and willfully ignorant about a man who had top secret documents stolen and placed in his personal residence, who fomented an insurrection, who has spoken to and enabled the worst angels of our nature, who has not only bubbled up the angry ugliness of our origin story and the racial divisiveness that is indelibly etched in the history of America, but but swims comfortably in it. You can you can stay down that road. That's your right as an American. But we're going to start calling you what that is, and that is you are against the idea of a pluralistic society. You are against the idea of a constitution. You stand firmly opposed to the peaceful transfer of power. You are in opposition to all of the things that have made America a shining city on a hill. And you will now be called that as a MAGA Republican. Because if you are a Republican who's classically conservative and you believe that the better way to help people is through smaller, more limited government and an emphasis on private sector solutions, that's fair. That's fine. The president said, I've worked with those people. I know those people. We may not have the right solutions, but we're all trying to get to the same place through different means. That's what a democracy is. But if you're against democracy, and that's where we are at this moment, a wide swath of our brothers and sisters as Americans are literally against democracy. He goes to the hallowed ground of Independence Hall where this nation was literally born on those footsteps and says, you're essentially an enemy of the state. And they are in a very technical term. That's not political language. You're trying to overthrow the government. You're trying to allow a man to be above the law. That's not sustainable. And it's about time and I, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying that the president of the United States has to start calling this out for the existential threat to the republic that it is. And we need to, as a nation, start treating it that way, which means we need to isolate it like a cancer on the body politic because it is. And we need to radiate it and kill it because if we do, I don't mean actually kill people. I mean, kill the political movement, because if we do not, it will metastasize and it will spread and it will destroy all of our institutions. And that's why I'm particularly proud of the president tonight 
when I have really not said probably all year that I am happy or 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 you know confident in the in the president's political um, tactics uh, today. I am proud of the president's political tactics. He did a damn good job. Yeah, I thought his speech was it, it felt very Reagan era Cold War, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. public address kind of feel to it. Well put. Um, only the Cold War is coming from within. I love that. Rest. I think, yeah, I may, I may steal that. I think that's exactly right. This was a very Reagan-esque speech. In fact, somebody tweeted that. My good friend Jason Vialba, uh, who I actually started the, the Latino Vote podcast with Chuck Rochon, tweeted today saying, yeah, I'm, uh, this, was a, this speech was way more Reagan th- than anything else that I have heard. I was a Republican tonight. I'm a Democrat. And, and, and yeah, in I, think ma- I, I, I think I responded to to one of your tweets about the speech, you okay. know, with that that sentiment, because, you know, I can remember as a kid, you know, we would all sit down and watch the presidential speeches when they came on. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what tonight felt like for me was that time when I was a kid and it was about, you know, the Cold War and nuclear armament and, and the serious nature of that. And tonight's speech felt very much the same. Renee, I couldn't agree with you more. He made he he clearly articulated, identified, and called out the existential threat to our country that this is, and I think that's what we heard tonight in this speech. And I again, I'm very very impressed by it. Well, thank you so much for answering my question, Mike. I appreciate you as always. Thank you for joining us again and asking great questions the way that you always do. Guys, we've got a really, really big group here today. I'm hoping this has been helpful. A lot of you guys have stuck around for a long time, so I'm, I'm guessing you probably found some value in it. If there's any questions, go ahead and jump up. We've been going for um, about an hour and a half, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, but again, as long as the crowd sticks around, um, I'm here. I don't want to beat a, a dead horse too much. Um, and I, I will not, there's Katie back up. Let's have Katie. There we go. A couple more questions. Let's keep going. My voice is holding up. Let's run with it. Katie, you're back up. Um, well, just wanted to point out there was a question in the chat about Val Demings in Florida. Oh, okay. What was it? Let me find the chat. What was the question? If it's worthwhile contributing to her, I think. Oh yeah. Look, I mean, is it worth supporting Val Demings and, and giving support Look, I, I'm not a big believer in Florida. Sorry to all the Floridians there. The data there has been trending Republican. I think it's a really far more Republican state than we give it credit for. Having said that, can a, a Democrat win? Yes, a Democrat can win. Do I think Rubio is particularly and specifically in a weak position? I do at this moment in time. I think that Florida is a lot more like Texas than we give it credit for, um, unfortunately. There's just too much peculiarity in both of those states where the Republicans, especially college-educated Republicans, um, behave more like non-college-educated Republicans. And I don't mean that as a pejorative statement. I mean that as a voter behavior statement. So, um, look, I think Rubio probably wins. But as I said, a lot of these races, the map is expanding. These races are coming into closer contention. They're not moving further and further away. They're getting tighter. Abrams' numbers are, are tightening up. I have not been particularly bullish on Abrams up until this point. She's looking a lot, lot stronger. Bet those numbers are tightening up. Um, the Arizona races, like I mentioned, are looking, they're in a better position. Now, will this last for the next 60 days? I don't know, but that's why you run campaigns. You run campaigns, you support campaigns 
because you never know what's going to happen. And in the same way, nobody could have predicted possibly the overturning of Roe Wade and the dramatic changes, the game changer that that was. You, you, that's why you do this. So I, absolutely, especially if you're in Florida, don't be giving up hope. Go in and fight and fight for another day. I think it's advantage Rubio. It just is. It's, it's, a, it's a more Republican state than not. Uh, I think DeSantis you know, wins re-election. I think that, you know, it's Florida. That's a, it's a weird, screwy, peculiar-ass state. But that doesn't mean that you don't run campaigns because anything can happen, and it's certainly a battleground state. It's certainly contestable. It's not like it's a 10% shot at winning. It's, you know, it's a 55% shot. A 55-45 is what you're looking at. Those are damn good odds in a campaign. I'll take those in you know, most of the campaigns I've run in my career. If I had that good of a shot... Um, I'd be happy about it, but yeah, most a lot of the campaigns that I've won weren't were anywhere that near that contention. So I think I'm making my point. Yes, support Val Demings. Do what you can, even if she does fall short. You start building infrastructure to make Florida more competitive, which is going to be important in the 2024. I have a weird, random, like other question. Okay. <laughs> um, if you're like. For people who are interested in politics and like doing the kinds of things that you do, like uh-huh. what is what would you say is the best path to to start getting involved? That's um, a great yeah, that's a great question too. There, this is politics is a is a profession, and as a business, is it's a very dynamic field. There's a lot that you can do. The best way to start is the way I started: call your local candidate that you like and just start volunteering. Meet the professionals working on that campaign and get to know the campaign manager, get to know the fundraiser, get to know the people doing the canvassing, get to know those people and start networking and tell them that you're interested. They will always find a spot for you somewhere, especially if you're good. It's not terribly hard to get in into politics. It's hard to start making a living at politics like it is in most things for a couple of years. But once you're in and you have a couple of cycles under your belt, um, it's not that complicated. You start building a, a network, you start talking to people, and you just start kind of building your career from there. But the best way to always start is to just contact your local campaign, a local candidate that you like and or support, and get in there, volunteer, and um, impress people, and you'll be on your way. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I always enjoy these um, these podcasts. So. You bet. Thanks for joining, and let me know how that goes. Um, you can also send me a direct message. Let me know where you're at, where you're looking for um, um, a job in politics, and if I can be helpful, I'll point you in the right direction, okay? All right, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. Hey, Mike. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I am doing, I'm doing wonderful. Um, I want to go back to... Um, Georgia, just a little bit. So okay, it's it breaks my heart. I would love to see Florida and Texas flip, right? But I don't know that we're going to get that this cycle, and I don't know we have the numbers. If I'm if I'm understanding right now with with Roe and the earthquake that hit, we don't really know what that looks like. We don't have enough data points. Is that what I was? I heard you say that we're going to have that for like thirty. <laughs> like it's going to take a little bit longer to have, know what that is going to look like. You mean Texas specifically and Georgia? No, 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 I meant like in our polling in general. I'm yeah, polling. yeah. Well, I think we could do it, and then I'm like, well, maybe not. And then I'm like, but, but we don't know what this really looks like. We don't have a clue right now. 
I, well, let me tell you where I think we're at, and then let me tell you what what, what I'm going to be looking for, and you can kind of you know use your own your own judgment here. I think we're basically at a at a, at a coin toss at this moment in time. I, I think I would much rather be the Democrats in the Senate map right now. Mm-hmm. I think I think the real clear poll, uh, you know. Uh, the the 538 and RCP averages have it like 60-40 Democrats. Uh, I think that's probably right. It might be even a little bit better. Um, mm-hmm. I, I So uh, the, the real question is the House. And the House is harder because, it you know, you can do state-by-state state polling. It makes a lot of sense. And then you can get these averages and you can actually look at cross tabs and see data point from data point and look at the movement. That's really hard in House seats, especially because all the seats are new. They've been redrawn. There's really no historical trend line for these new seats. And it's it's really hard to do across 20, 30, you know, congressional districts. There's a big debate on what is actually a contested, you know, House seat. If you ask Dave Wasserman at the Cook Report, he's going to say there's probably 18 to 20 truly swing seats. If you ask Crystal Ball, Larry Sabato, they're going to probably say there's 25 to 30. If you ask Mike Madrid, I'm going to say there's probably really 17. Okay, so everybody's definition of what is a contestable seat is different, let alone there are no polling firms that are publicly polling each one of these districts every few days the way they are in Pennsylvania or the way they are in Ohio or Texas or Georgia or Arizona. So what we rely on is the generic ballot, and that's a very crude instrument. It's a crude instrument because it doesn't necessarily reflect the the exact demographics of that contestable seat. Now, more often than not, it's pretty close. They tend to be suburban districts with a significant number of college-educated voters. And the reason why is because those are swingier voters. They, they tend to change their opinions more than non-college-educated voters. And so as a result... You know, we look at the demographics and we say, okay, this one is in contention or that one's not in contention, but we don't have nearly the same amount of polling data. So that's the main concern about the House and predicting the outcome of the House. So what we look for is other demographic shifts. For example, this tectonic shift that's happening with women. That tells us a lot. It tells us a lot, a lot about this break with where these all of these seats may actually go. Right. If women show up by if they over if women overperform the voter model by five points, I mean, Katie bar the door. It, that's a blue wave. OK. And the reason the reason why is it means that all the polling that we're seeing right now that is incrementally moving towards the Democrats, there's actually a hidden women's vote of five points. And that's huge for the Democrats. Yeah. Now, is that the case? Well, I don't know. And like I said, we're not going to. So let me let me explain it again because maybe I didn't do a good job and maybe this will answer the question. When you're building a, a wait, when you're waiting a poll, when you're guessing at who's going to show up, that's ninety percent of the accuracy of a poll. And the only way to do that credibly is to look back historically and say this is what the trend line is. But what happens if something happens in really you know very close to the elections? that distorts the turnout model, which is precisely what happens. Well, what ha- all you can do as a pollster is you can do one of two things. You can make a complete guess, or you can at least look back at the historical trend line and continue to use the historical trend line so that if you're wrong, you can say, 
Well, I did what the best practices in polling are, and it was wrong because nobody could have foreseen that. That's way better as a professional pollster than simply saying, let me guess at how women are going to react to this. Because again, people will look at you professionally if you're wrong, and the, the chances are you will be wrong, and saying, well, what are you basing that off of? If your answer is, ah, I guessed. Oh, that's just what my gut was telling me. Like, that's not what a professional pollster does. You've got to have some sort of scientific basis for what you're doing. Now, what every pollster has realized is that all of these elections since Dobbs are showing a stronger lean towards women. The question now is how much? And so they are all, and they're all to varying degrees based off of the pollster and the data that they're using, showing a higher turnout amongst women. Now, if I poll once every month, which is what a lot of these polls do, you've only polled twice since the Dobbs decision, right? Yeah. And so you only have two data points, which you also meld into the other 10 years of data points. So the bump isn't that significant. It's starting to show up by a point or two, but it may not be the five points that the other actual election results in other parts of the country are showing. Does that make sense? Yes, it is. Okay. So what I'm saying is the closer we get when you do a third poll and it shows that same bump, then you start to adjust it even more. And so what I'm suggesting is there's probably, and I hate to use the term hidden vote, right? Because that's what, there was always a shy Trump voter. Remember when they used to talk about the shy Trump voter? Yes, yeah. This would be like saying there's a shy female vote out there. It's not exactly what it is, but I guess it's kind of a layman's way of understanding it. There is a there is a shift amongst female voters that is not completely reflected in all of the polling because the models have not caught up to the sentiment where women are at at this point in time. Okay. Is that helpful? Yes. Now, so if you don't mind, I've been following you guys since the Lincoln Project. Okay. I have sweatshirts. I have merch. That's, you know. And honestly, 2020, I'm like everybody else. I would not have got through election day if you guys had not been telling us, stay calm. It's going to look like a red, red mirage. I just ate the day off work. It was awful. I was like, I can't breathe. <laughs> right. It was. I, I'm about five o'clock. I was like, I'm done. The red, <laughs> the red mirage kept happening. I was all yeah. But so we told you about it, right? We were telling you yeah, that was going to happen. Yeah. That was the only way. I kid you not. I was in my kitchen holding onto the counter going, okay, <laughs> that's what they said. And I don't mean yeah. to use crass language, but all I could hear was Wilson in my head going, fuck you, keep counting. <laughs> right. That's what I heard him say. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so... One thing I thought I remember happening, though, was with the Senate race in Georgia, mm-hmm. that when Trump wasn't on the ballot, yeah. the MAGA Republican did not show up as hard right. as they had in the other. Right. That mean, do we have any way to, accom- to, to consider that in these numbers and then bring in the women vote? Or is that just is there is there any accounting for those two things together to get us to where we think we might really have maybe an even better chance than we know of? Yeah, no, look, I think that's a fair assumption. Um, It it is a fair assumption. The problem is with people that are asked to prognosticate like me or or Wasserman or Sabato or these, you know, Kornacki, like, and I'm not saying I'm one of those guys. I'm just saying I'm a political, I I actually run campaigns. They're they're, they're more in the prediction business. I'm, I'm not. What I'm saying is, yes, that is a fair assumption. 
But it's just that. It's an assumption. If there's no data, it's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. Of what I am convinced of is I do believe that the polls are not reflecting in its entirety the shift that has happened because of Dobbs. That that would mean if the elections were held today, I think the Democrats would do much better than the polls are saying. The funny thing about that, though, is the elections are not going to be held today. Like more is going to happen. That red wave. There's also a fear of this, too. Now, some people are like, that's not going to happen. And that, that may be right. But you don't want to peak right now. If right. the Dem- if the Democrats are it's cresting very early. Now some people will be like, this ain't cresting. We're still at the beginning of this tidal wave. That's fair. That may be true. But the last thing you want to do, and usually you get a gut feeling for this stuff in a campaign, is is if your campaign peaks a week too early, a lot of times you will fall short and you can feel it. What is happening is there is rising democratic sentiment. There is no question about it. Kevin McCarthy, you could see it on his face. You could hear it by the tone that he was delivering his speech in, and you could tell by the messages that he was putting out. They know they're not in a good position right now. He's trying to hold his base. The real question that's going to be uh, uh, asked by everybody, and all the pollsters are going to try to figure out is, is the post-Dob pro-democratic vote getting bigger? Is the swell just starting, or is it cresting and about to break early? We don't know the answer to that. I think a lot of us have our gut hopes and instincts about that, but we don't know. What I do know is this has been a remarkably fast, strong change since June. For those of you that were listening to me in April, May, in the spring, I was, you know, pulling the little bit of hair out of my head that I got left saying, guys, this is going to be a disaster. What the hell is Biden doing? Now, there was nothing that Biden did that turned this around. The Supreme Court turned this around. But all of that momentum is now moving in the Democrats' direction. Suddenly, he's picking up legislative victory after legislative victory. He announces the college loan um, um forgiveness plan he gives a hell of a stem winder speech on just the right issues in just the right way like dude's got momentum mm-hmm. brandon he's biden's got momentum there's no there's, there's no there's no debating that is it gonna last two more months well we're gonna see it's it's early i don't like it being this early but you know like i said i've never seen this big of a political shift happen it doesn't mean it's not going to keep going right a tsunami can go from southeast asia and crash on the shores of of you know California in two yeah. weeks it could just keep getting bigger. I, I mean that may that may be what's happening with this with this wave. I don't know. We don't know. There's not enough data. It's all guessing and speculation at this point. Okay. Do you mind if I ask one more question? Uh, ask one more, Colleen. Hang in. Hang in with us. I will get to you. Be patient. But go ahead. Yeah. What else you got? What What is going on down there with our senator up against Herschel Walker? Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I'm like, he's beating him by a razor. Are you kidding me? I think Senator Warnock is going to be just fine. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'm just, I yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, I have seen Walker closing the gap with the data. I honestly haven't been paying that close of attention to it. I have a hard time believe time believing that independents are breaking towards the Democrats. Young people are engaging behind the Democrats. The Democratic base is fired up, and somehow Herschel Walker is closing the gap. Doesn't make sense to me. I'm not saying it's not happening. What I'm saying is the fundamentals and the Georgia trend line speak very strongly towards a Warnock re-election. 
It would be extraordinarily anomalous if he were to lose. It could happen. Stranger things have happened. We're going to have to wait and find out. But I, I would much rather be Warnock than Herschel Walker, not only at this point, but any point up until this point. And there's very little that I think can change the dynamics of that race. But again, 65 days is a hell of a long time in politics. Okay. Thank you, Mike. You bet. Thanks for the questions. Colleen, thank you so much for being patient. You are on stage. Go ahead and unmute, and we'll go ahead and take your question. Hey, Mike. How are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm actually in Southern California. I'm oh. San Fernando Valley. So San Fernando um, Valley. That's by, by my hometown. I'm from Moore Park, California, right over the hill from the oh, San Fernando Valley. Sherman Oaks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, is it hot down there? We're going to have an extraordinary heat wave, folks. For those of you outside of California, like we're talking, you know, three or four days of, of over 100 degree weather here up in Northern California. We're expecting it to be perhaps the hottest week ever on record, and I'm, I'm not looking forward to it. Yeah, it's, it's quite warm down here, and I work from home. So at least I don't have to leave the house, but yeah. we don't have any blackouts or power outages. But anyway. Um, my question, I two totally different parts of the country questions. So I'm just curious because I'm in a very blue area. Obviously, you know that. But what about Orange County? What's yeah. going on there? Um, I have friends down there, but I don't. We don't talk politics all that often. Yeah. About Katie Porter and some others. Yeah. That- Great question. Let me talk a little bit about Orange County because even though if you're not from California, um, it's extremely important to understand some things about Orange County, California. The first of, of the first thing to know is that historically um, it's viewed as a very Republican county. When Ronald Reagan was president, uh, he called it famously and accurately the most Republican county in America um, because it was the largest, most populous Republican county in the country. This is not the same Orange County um, that, that was happening in the mid-1980s. It's far, far more diverse than it ever has been. And as many of you will recall, after 2018, um, there was not a single Republican member of Congress that represented the county. Now, Republicans clawed back in 2020 in the presidential election and picked up Young Kim and Michelle Steele seats, two Asian women. Um, and they are the current representatives trying to hold on to, to those seats. Um, Katie Porter is looking at uh, basically uh, her district has changed dramatically. She's running against uh, a former assembly Republican leader from way back when I was uh, a young staffer in the state Capitol by the name of Scott Baugh. That's a tough district by the numbers for a Democrat. I think Katie Porter is probably in a stronger position than most are because of the demographics that are there. And let me, let me explain why these seats are so interesting and, and we'll be, we'll really, if it's close, determine the balance of power. The seats held by these two Republicans, Young Kim and Michelle Steele, are the two congressional districts in the country with the highest number of college-educated voters anywhere in the country. Really? Yeah. It's very, very, and the other, one of the other ones was Mike Garcia's seat up in the Santa Clarita Valley, right? Not far from where you're at. Uh, well, kind of, I mean, far from where you're at, but compared to, compared, yeah, compared to, compared to everybody else on the phone, it's, you're very, very close. He's, he's, he's in the Santa Clarita Valley, which is the high desert area, the very, very northern part of LA County, 
which is which is kind of an upper middle class suburban communities. Um, um, and, and Mike Garcia is a was a jet fighter pilot is, you know, was a jet fighter pilot, um, very MAGA Republican, leaned hard into Trump and is probably, I, I think, very likely to lose his seat uh, to Kathy uh, Smith, the Democrat challenger. Uh, that'll be a pickup for the Democrats, almost certainly. But, and this is the important point, this is where I was getting at. These seats are, are suburban seats with very high numbers of college-educated, upper-middle-class voters, largely white in Orange County. This is where the white folks still very segregated, not entirely, but, but they're still pretty white communities. These are college-educated suburban moms who have no tolerance for the pro-life folks in the party. They are people that culturally do not feel comfortable with the party of the Confederacy, and they are very swingy voters. In 2016, Orange County, these same districts, did something that I had never seen before, no one had ever seen before. They voted for the Republican Congress member down ticket and did not vote for Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. There were actually more votes, more Republican votes in Congress than there were for President of the United States. That had never happened before. No one had ever heard of that before. These are people that did not like Donald Trump. They showed up to vote for the Republicans down ticket but left it blank up top. Didn't vote for Hillary but did not vote for Donald Trump. Fast forward to 2018. These same voters in the same districts vote for the Democrat down ticket. This is when Katie Porter is first elected. And they sweep in. They sweep in Nancy Pelosi to the Speaker's office as a rejection of Donald Trump. These are, again, a Republican, white, college-educated women. Really important. Because in 2020, two years later, these same voters vote for Joe Biden at the top of the ticket and go back as a check on Joe Biden and the Democrats and vote for the Republicans down ticket. The important point about this, and this is a long, long, long way of answering your question because it's a very good one, is these voters are very discerning. They know what they're doing. They're voting strategically. They're voting consciously. And most importantly, they're voting against the extreme elements in both parties that they perceive. At this point in time, the polling would suggest that these Republicans, these MAGA Republicans, are clearly demonstrating that they are the extremists in this election cycle. That's good news for those districts because these college-educated voters are swingier. They move more. They're more flexible than other parts of the country. They're certainly more flexible than the Scranton, Pennsylvania voters where Kevin McCarthy was. And Kevin knows this. Kevin's not too far. Kevin's from Bakersfield. So he's right, not right. he's not terribly he's he's a lot closer to Huntington Beach than he is to Scranton, Pennsylvania. You notice he didn't go to the suburbs of Orange County. Right. He went to Scranton, Pennsylvania because he's talking to his base. Right. Okay. Make sense? Yes, thank you. And a totally different direction. I just I don't I missed the first few minutes, so I don't know if you talked about Alaska at all. But I was curious, my question is, what will happen in November? Does this candidate have a chance of getting <coughs> the incumbent candidate have a chance of winning again? And then You know, uh, if the candidate is not Sarah Palin, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I, the Republicans will probably pick the seat back up. 
Okay. If it's Sarah Palin, I, I think there's a national narrative set where Palin probably wins, but not necessarily. I mean, remember, it's ranked choice voting there. That's, that's, there's going to be a huge discussion. You're going to be hearing a lot about this. The reason why Sarah Palin lost is because she's Sarah Palin and people just don't like her. Is people weren't voting for her on the second ballot. So she just completely collapsed. Like, she's got her hardcore base and that's all she's got. That would work in a traditional runoff election because all of Bagadich's, you know, followers, you know, 60% of the voters were Republicans. But in, in rank choice, you literally, if you leave your second choice blank, if you're like, I'm going to vote for Begadich and then I, I will never vote for Sarah Palin as a Republican, that's a net pickup for the Democrat. That's what happened here. Is, is there, there, was a, there was a wide swath of Republicans who were not going to vote for Palin under any circumstances. If I find Peralta, is that her name, Peralta? Poltola? Poltola. Sorry. Yeah. To, yeah. First Native American to represent uh, Alaska, which is kind of cool. But if I'm her, you know, the, the, that, that campaign has something to work with. They, they've got something to work with. There's, there's, there's a wide swath of that base. Now, most of it, I think, probably comes home. It was just an outright slap in the face to Sarah Palin. That's what this was about. Most of that will come home to any generic Republican because there are Republicans up there. But this this was a, a just a just a flat outright rejection of Sarah Palin. You got to remember, Alaska, as huge as it is, a lot of these people know her personally because she's been governor and she was the mayor of Wasilla. She's been, you know, a, a lot of these Alaskans know each other, and it's like four or five cities. Yeah, they're hard to get to, but when you've been campaigning for twenty years, you you know each other. Right. Like, there's five hundred thousand people in the whole damn state. 80% of them live, you know, in four cities. So you, you know them. It's like, you know, Tom, you know, Sally, you know, Sarah Palin, right? They know each other. And I'm not saying all of them, but a wide swath of them. And so a lot of this was just a personal rejection of, 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 of Sarah Palin. I don't know if you saw the stories, but her, her, um, her in-laws held a, a fundraiser for, for the Republican challenger against them. Her, ex, her her ex-in-laws, right? Like that's that's I mean the politics are personal there. It's like small town politics. It's just the size of a country. So uh, look, I, I it's Alaska. It, it hasn't voted for a woman in that seat since Roe Wade since 1973. I think it's very very likely to go back to Republicans. This was just a rejection of Palin and it it, it just adds another uh boost to to the rockets that Democrats are enjoying right now and um in many ways, it kind of just it's a it's kind of a a nice fu back because of the Myra Flores special election in Texas, where the Republicans picked up a seat they had no business holding. That seat will go to the Democrats too, by the way. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Fair enough. All right. All right. Thanks for that question. We're still going. Have you guys got more questions? Uh, we'll jump in. Uh, my voice is is holding up a little bit. If you guys are finding this interesting. Um, I've never ha done a podcast this long before, but we've got a bigger group at any point in the past couple of hours since. Um, I don't know how much more I can riff off of, but you guys are, are hanging out. So I think the questions that one good thing about this show, uh, especially with regular callers, is we get really, really good questions asked. So um, I haven't seen much of the, the um, post uh, speech punditry that has gone on. I'll have to do my catching up a little bit as we um, as we wrap up here. 
Um, but I, I think, you know, the Republicans, of course, are going to light their hair on fire and start saying uh, Joe Biden is the worst thing in the world. That's fine. Uh, that, that they, they want that response. Biden's people want that response. They want the extremists. They want they're, they're trying to get them all hopped up as much as they're trying to instill some motivation and energy in the Democratic base. Folks, they want an energized Republican base. Because they want those voices amplified. The more those voices start to cut through at just the time when people are starting to pay attention, those extremist voices will frame the generic ballot. Those will frame the perception of the party to those lower propensity, medium propensity voters that don't follow politics all day. The people that don't call into mic drop and hang out and listen to this for a couple of hours that don't watch, you know, Biden's speech and Kevin's speech and, and don't know, you know, that Val Demings and Marco Rubio are in this battle and don't know, you know, about the, the last shift. Like we're not, we're not normal people. You all know that, right? Like we're not normal people. That's why we hang out together. It's because, you know, people like us got to stick together, but most Americans, as they start to tune in, are going to tune in really right now, right? We, Labor Day is kind of the official start of the last stretch of the campaign season. 60 days out, 65 days out, people are starting to pay attention. And it's why this speech was timed where it was, when it was. And I think it's, it's, it's really um, important to remember that. Biden is setting the frame. Kevin McCarthy took the bait to try to do the same thing. Okay, they're telling us where the the determining demographics of each uh, each party is going to be, and what what McCarthy told us was this is now a base election for the Republicans. They are going to live and die by the MAGA Trump base. They are going to lean in as hard as they can to blue collar, non college educated workers in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and surrounding communities like it. And that's going to make the young Kims and the Michelle Steeles in Orange County nervous as hell. Those Republicans in college-educated suburban districts did not like Kevin's speech. I'll tell you what else they didn't like. They didn't like Joe Biden saying MAGA Republicans 30 times in that speech. What Joe Biden was telling all of you, all of you Biden supporters, is start using that phraseology wherever you can. Use it on Twitter. Use it on Facebook. Use it in your conversations. Start framing Republicans as MAGA Republicans because what that will do is shake out those Republicans that don't want to be affiliated with it and say, I'm out. If, if all that is left of Republicans is MAGA, I'm out. Like, I can't do it anymore. Everybody's got their own different threshold. There are, there are different red lines. We're still trying to find where some of these people's red lines are, right? Liz Cheney did the right thing, but damn, it took her six years to get here. God love Liz. You know, I'm a big fan of her, a huge fan of Liz Cheney. But damn, I wish she would have joined you know, forces with us six years ago and engaged in the fight a lot easier. I'm glad to have her now. And hell, I'll take whoever we can get going forward because democracy's at stake, society's at stake, the American experiment's at stake. We'll take all of that. We'll take all of it. But, God, come on, guys. I mean, it's getting late into the game here. We're in the late innings now, right? And so when you start to cement and brand these guys as MAGA Republicans, in many ways, this is like I was saying, it's a sea change from what from what uh, Biden has done. Biden was a conciliatory guy. This is fighting Joe. 
This is a pissed off Uncle Joe who's like, let's let's call it what it is. Let's call it out and let's let's make a run at it. Let's have let's make a decision. Let's decide, America, who are we going to be? Sixty seven percent of Republicans think that democracy is under threat. Sixty seven percent of Democrats think democracy is under threat. The same exact number in both parties. Let's have it out. Let's 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 have the battle. Let's let's decide whose vision of democracy is going to win out here because you can't have both. They're not sustainable. And I guarantee you in the same way they made the smart strategic decision of 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 pushing for college loans and had that in their back pocket even if Dobbs never would have happened if Roe Wade never have been overturned they had to have something. What I will tell you is They've also looked at this thing and vetted this thing six ways from Sunday and realized that the phraseology of using MAGA Republicans is putting them in a really, really strong spot with independence. So that's where Democrats find themselves at this moment in time, 67 days out. They are moving independence decidedly in their direction. They're seeing a huge turnout from low propensity medium propensity and Republican women showing up for them on a key issue of abortion. And we're starting to see the emanations of an energized youth vote and the college loan forgiveness program certainly played into that. Finally, the last wrapper on all of this, the extremism of the Republican party, that's the refrigerator hum I started talking about when the January 6th, committee began its work in January is starting to pay off. It was going to be a slow drip, drip, drip all throughout the year. And when the hearings were actually held, it would make an impact. I believe it has made an impact. You could see that impact happening in the polling. One thing that none of us ever imagined would be that there would be an FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago and President, I'm not going to, President, the former President had top-secret information in his residence. Unbelievable. All of these playing significantly into this notion, this idea that the Republican Party is not only lawless, not only was lying about defunding the FBI, but perhaps more importantly, they believe that their person, their party, their biggest champion is above the law even when it gets down to stealing and taking and who knows, copying, making copies of selling our nation's top secrets. Like all of this is, is baking in to independence. It is making the Republican base stronger. Don't, don't mistake what I am saying. I think there are still going to be a handful of individual Republicans that will shake off. Most of them are going to lock down but you're going to start seeing a decided movement away from from independence, away from the um, Republican Party. I think the polling out today in the Wall Street Journal had it as a plus nine, Democrats plus nine with independence. Big numbers. We're starting to get into double digits territory. Long, long way to go. No more uh, um, um, questions dropping into the queue. I'm losing my voice. Guys, it's been over two hours. I appreciate you being with me uh, more than you realize. I'm sorry about having to push back uh, the time uh, from yesterday. 
some things ran over. I'm actually really glad that I did because I think this was a perfect discussion. And in many ways, tonight really represented the official uh, kickoff of the campaign season with these two speeches. I'm going to start talking a little bit less about movement now in the polls. And we're going to start talking about the issues matrix because that's going to tell us which demographics both parties need to turn out. Um, So with that, thank you so much for joining me here on Mic Drop. We're going to do this again next week. If you want to do it more regularly as we get closer, we will probably do that in the last uh, eight weeks of the campaign. We're only eight weeks out to see what happens. Um, But until then, Thank you for sharing. I know a lot of you guys just recently were just kicking this out, too, because we've been going on for two hours. Thank you for sharing this on Twitter, on social media. Thank you all for joining, especially if you're new to the crew, if you're new to the gang. Don't be afraid to ask questions. That's what makes this work. I will talk to you next week on Mic Drop.